0: the very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is how can change to the world okay. okay. state of things in view of violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
1: Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, I do want to mention, if you're enjoying the content that I'm putting out, I do have a Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. My goal is to have an additional 60 patrons before the end of the year. I just want to at least get to the point where the uh, my expenses are, you know, I'm not losing money producing the podcast, but um, no matter what, I'm going to c- continue to do it. A very machinic welcome to today's guest, Dr. Lewis Call, professor in the his- uh, Department of History at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and author of three books, Postmodern Anarchism, which we'll be talking about discussing a lot today. BDSM in American science fiction and fantasy and sexualities in the works of Joss Whedon, as well as uh, a number of different articles published in various journals. And there is one we'll actually discuss about uh, the comic book, The Invisibles by Grant Morrison. But Lewis, thanks so much for joining me today on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Cooper. Very happy to be here.
1: Absolutely. Uh, tr- tremendous pleasure. Like we, we kind of were talking before we hit record. Uh, Lewis is the final collection in my postmodern <laughs> anarchist uh, collection of thinkers in addition to uh, Saul Newman, Todd May, Andrew Koch. So you're completing, what is it? the, uh, the inf- My infinity gauntlet of Those <laughs> thinkers is completed now. So That's watch right.
2: Out. So pretty soon you'll be ready to rule the universe. That's exactly. <laughs> snap,
1: snap my fingers, get any guests that I want.
2: if you you, you turn me down
1: exactly if you turn me down i snap you're gone you're out of here (laughs) that's it to sort of ease into the conversation today what i just kind of wanted to get a feel for like i mentioned i've been getting back into reading comics over the past five or six years it's something that i've enjoyed tremendously just in terms of getting the kind of creative juices flowing i missed out on a lot of the kind of more adult Comics that had been written and published over the years. So i am kind—I'm of, lucky in a way that I'm getting to go back and read all these, you know, kind of masterpieces of comics. But I'm curious. So, did, were you someone that read comics as growing up, or kind of where was that? How did you get into that, or decide to write about that
2: topic? So I've always loved comics. Um, I've read comics uh, ever since I was a kid. Um, I collect them. I've got. I mean, my, my garage is just literally full of boxes and boxes and boxes of comic books. So it's a, it's a little bit of an obsession, I guess. But um, uh, so with comics, I've, I've done something that I, I try to do with a lot of things, which is to take one of my weird obsessions and then right. turn it into an object of scholarly study. So <laughs> it's, a, it's one of the really fun things that happens when you, you know, when you go into a research field like science fiction and fantasy, you realize, oh, all this crazy stuff that I've always loved ever since I was a kid. I can actually write papers about it. I can write books about it. I can go to conferences about it. Well, I used to before COVID, go to conferences right, yeah. about it. Um, so yeah, so it's uh, it's a lifelong love of mine.
1: I love looking at, I think, particularly like the postmodern, post-structuralist theory is so good at, being able to like kind of a tool for analyzing text and whatnot. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that. So my big hobby horse now is this relationship between the theory and posting and memes online. Mm -hmm. Particularly, like I see this kind of merging or have this idea of kind of merging Lacan and Baudrillard in this study of, I think, Twitter in particular is the one that I find the most interesting. And I think we'll... We'll get into that a bit later on in the conversation. But since you mentioned taking those kind of, you know, these funny little hobbies that you've had or things that you love that you can kind of twist <laughs> to fit theory um, is always fun.
2: This will be the first of probably several times when I reveal that I'm actually pretty old. Uh, so I, I came up with the with the original definition of the term meme, right, which comes from the work of Richard Dawkins. And it's, uh, you know, he understood it as a self-propagating piece of information so he was using it as a way to understand uh, genetics and so forth right I've learned from my kids uh, that it now has a very different meaning. Uh, so, and it's related obviously, but right. so now, you know, when people say meme, they mean one of these catchy little uh, pictures that has a, a phrase that goes along with it um, that, that circulates rapidly on the internet. And um, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting to see how the, the younger generation has kind of appropriated that concept of the meme. And um you know, figured out how to use that, I, I think pretty effectively, um, I agree. you know, so it's, you know, for, for an era where, you know, people's attention spans, are maybe not that long, uh, it seems like a, you know, pretty sort of quick, pithy way that you can get an idea out there into the popular consciousness. So yeah, it's been interesting
1: exactly it's interesting to see i think just semiotically kind of how those things function and you see like the the repetition of it and like the evolution of it it's so fast
0: mm-hmm. these
1: things get you know what i mean and then it becomes a reference of a re- it kind of spirals on and on and on i think baudrillard would would probably love <laughs> love to see what's going on today
2: oh yeah multiple orders of simulation going on uh- with a meme. So, you know, the meme perhaps comments on some kind of social or cultural phenomenon. And then there's another meme that comments on the first meme, right? Right. So you get this kind of self-referential thing going on. And it is related to comic books, which you were mentioning a moment ago, because, um, you know, here you have a pretty effective way to combine text with image it generates oh, something true, which, yeah. you know, it ends up being, I think, more than the sum of its parts, right? It has more of an impact than the picture by itself would or the the text by itself would.
1: Absolutely. Just to maybe back up before we get too in-depth in here, I'm just cu- kind of curious, would you share maybe some of your... Uh your all-time favorite comics or some that you found to be you know you've enjoyed the most or you would recommend to someone who has an interest but hasn't really you know delved into the the history of comics that
2: seriously you know for people who are interested in the more um political comics i guess alan moore and david lloyd's uh v for vendetta uh, would be would be one obvious uh, place to start uh so that one's had a huge impact within the world of comics, but also I think more broadly um, in popular culture, just, uh, you know, as a way to express some, some fairly radical revolutionary ideas, but in an accessible fashion, right. uh, which, you know, to me is really one of the strengths of the, the comic book form, right? They're able to take some often pretty sophisticated theoretical concepts and put them out there in a way that um, that will be accessible to the average comic book reader. So that's a good one. Let's see. I mean, I mean, I like, um, you know, I like some kind of mainstream superhero comics, too. Although I tend to like the less mainstream versions of those mainstream comics. Right. Uh, so, for example, um, you mentioned Grant Morrison. He's recently been doing a, a Green Lantern series uh, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, and I feel like, um, you know, Morrison's really in his element when he's doing science fiction. Right. Because he's just, um, he's he's one of the best people in terms of being able to just imagine a truly alien world or a truly an environment that is truly other, right? You know, and, and so much of the second rate science fiction is just, you know, they, they take something from earth and they just put it in space, right. And call it science fiction. So, you know, with Morrison, I feel like you get something that's much more creative and seems, seems authentically different. Uh, so yeah, I like his stuff.
1: Doom patrol, his doom patrol run is mm-hmm. one of my all time favorites. I like that. I mean, we're going to discuss a little bit from your article on the invisibles, but Doom Patrol is my favorite Morrison that I've that I've read so far.
2: Yeah, Doom Patrol is a trip, man. Uh, so <laughs> de- right. Definitely Grant Morrison's, and then uh, after him, uh, Gerard Way kind of took up the baton and uh, and sort of you know pushed the envelope maybe even a little bit further than than Grant Morrison had. And that's really saying something, right. right? So, and then I've recently been enjoying the um, the TV show. Uh, yes. So they've ma- they've made a, a TV version, which seems to me. You know, pretty strongly inspired by uh, Largely, both the yeah. Grant Morrison and the Gerard Way uh, Doom Patrol comics. I would say.
1: Agreed. I was uh, I was about to ask you that because I also watched the show, and one of my favorite. I love how they and this kind of maybe is a good segue for us. Is I love the way that they were able. The way that they did the Danny the Street episode mm-hmm. was just absolutely brilliant. That was so good. I was so pleased with that. And just to give I guess listeners background. Um, so. Danny the Street is a sentient piece of, uh, I guess, <laughs> what would you say? He's like a sort of a main street, but <laughs> little sort of section. Like he's a, that's the entity. And uh, let's see, at least starting out, he was, or I'm, maybe I'm even misgendering. So Danny the Street was somewhat of a... I think I yeah. Know. I
2: think da- Danny's non-binary, right? right yeah, so. I know,
1: right? So <laughs> I should back up. They are rather, or at least started out as a cross-dresser, which I don't know if that seems maybe like that's an older... Mm-hmm. terminology i don't know if that's what the terminology even
2: yeah i think that that probably is a little bit dated and that, that one probably comes from morrison because right. um you know he was writing about this stuff actually before a lot of other people were because he also writes about it in the invisibles as well right. and that was yeah. back in the 90s absolutely and so he used, he uses terms like cross-dressing or um transvestism uh which are you know not not used so much anymore, but I think we're probably appropriate at the time.
1: Right. I have always been thoroughly impressed with Morrison doing that at that, you know, early nineties is pretty early on. So I've always thought that was pretty incredible of him to be exploring those avenues that like now, you know, 20 years later, that's you everybody know, does. Th- yeah.
2: But he, he did it before it was cool. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Moving forward into kind of the, the discussion of, so you wrote an article about the invisibles recently so this was published in 2018 a thought thinking itself post-anarchism and grant morrison's the invisibles so we'll start off discussing that so we already discussed that i've only read i think i read the first three volumes of the trade paperbacks that have been published i think the whole series out of course So I don't have as much knowledge of probably, I guess, the second half. And so just as a a warning to, we may spoil a bit of the ending of the series today. So spoiler alert to anybody's listening. But I thought you made some really interesting points here about comics operating in the Lacanian imaginary and symbolic. Can you maybe unpack that for us? And maybe in the context of The Invisible specifically.
2: It actually gets back to what we were talking about a minute ago, that, you know, comics are this... um... This really unique medium because um, they're able to uh, to combine words and pictures in this really innovative fashion, and so um, it occurred to me some time ago that um, an interesting way to approach this might be to take Jacques Lacan's uh, theory that um, you know human experience is basically divided up into these three different realms. Uh, so there's the real, which we can't say anything about. It's inaccessible. It's this, Lacan calls it this traumatic kernel at the heart of our experience. Uh, then there's the imaginary, which is the realm of feeling and emotion and also visuals, right? The, uh, the realm of image.
1: Image, right.
2: Yeah. And then there's the, uh, the symbolic, what Lacan calls the symbolic. And this is the realm of language and culture, Philosophy and thought, and uh, all of those sorts of things. And so, you know, it, it just occurred to me that comics operate at this kind of interesting intersection between the imaginary and the symbolic, right? Because obviously they, you know, they have a textual element, uh, but. I feel like it's one of the few media where the visual element is at least as significant as the textual element. And especially once you start to look at some of the uh, the formal aspects of comics, things like page layout, panel composition, you know, all of the technical parts, uh, there's so much that goes into it that a comic book artist is putting into it uh, that, you know, the average comic book reader might never think about that, but it really... You know, has a has a powerful impact on the meaning of the comic and on the way that it expresses its ideas. And so, you know, I thought it would be kind of fun to uh, to just play around a little bit with that. And it seemed like um, Morrison's Invisibles would be a good vehicle for that because, um, you know, he's one of these um, he's one of these authors who likes to um, break the fourth wall, as they say, and actually, you know, comment on some of the things that he's doing in his comics. Uh, so, you know, there are some. Uh, Some things in the Invisibles comics that, um, you know, I think really, really speak uh, pretty directly to the relationship between symbolic and imaginary and some other aspects of um, of semiotic theory. Uh, For example, he he made up this um, this fictional hallucinogenic drug called the key drug. And so what it does is um, when a person takes it, they they lose the distinction between a word and the object that that name, that that word names, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> in, in, yeah, it's, it's really clever. Uh, so in, you know, in structuralist or post-structuralist terms, it basically causes the the signifier and the signified to collapse into one another. Uh, so, and then, the, you know, the characters are are taking this in the comics from time to time. Uh, so it just seemed like um you know Morrison's thinking about these things the comic is also expressing these things to the audience so you know it seemed like a good way to explore some of those ideas
1: and then even overtly there's definitely there's anarchist references I I recently read the reread the first volume again and I, there's like a there's a Kropotkin reference there's a couple of different things sprinkled throughout at least that first volume and I'm sure I mm-hmm. would have I'd have to read again the the rest of the series I'm sure there's more um,
2: yeah, it's, it's very eclectic. There's lots of um, situationism. Uh, the let's say the uh, the Marquis de Sade appears as a right. character in there. <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, you know, he's obviously problematic in some ways, but you know, also a revolutionary figure who you know participated in the the radical phase of the French Revolution and talks about some of those ideas in the comics. So uh, yeah, there's uh, there's quite a few um, points in the narrative at which it connects to. Uh, real-world um, politics and philosophy.
1: You refer to the invisibles as a, as a post-anarchist cultural artifact, which I think is, is interesting. I, I don't think most people conceive of comics that way, but can you elaborate on, on, on what, you, what you mean by that?
2: So I guess this is the part of um, comic book studies that can be a little bit frustrating, is that oftentimes if you're a scholar who studies comic books, you spend a whole lot of time just justifying your field right and just explaining why oh you know why this is actually a legitimate scholarly enterprise and why people should actually care Uh, because you know it's even today it's it's still quite easy for somebody to just dismiss comic books and say they're for kids they don't matter they're irrelevant now the good news is that i think that's much less true than it used to be you know because there's a number of people who've been doing really serious work on comics for for decades now and so I think it has made its way more into the kind of um, academic mainstream. Uh, but having said all that, you know, it's still, I think, um, pretty easy for people to take this kind of dismissive attitude towards comics. Uh, so, you know, when I, when I describe something like the Invisibles as a cultural artifact, it's partly meant to kind of challenge that attitude, right? To suggest that, hey, this is, um, you know, an interesting object, which our culture produced, Uh, And we should take it seriously and we should examine it the same way we might examine, you know, a great painting or a sculpture or a symphony or anything like that, right? It's not fundamentally different from those other things. It's just that it's a a medium uh, that doesn't have the same kind of cultural capital behind it uh, that some of those, you know, quote unquote, high art uh, media might have.
1: That's what I love about the meme to and in my own, so I'm a pretty prolific poster on Twitter. I have an an anonymous account that's a, kind of a it's a half joke account, but half serious. And what my my favorite thing to do is kind of collapse that distinction between this sort of body sense of humor with these kind of like high theory elements, and mm-hmm. I find that endlessly funny, fun, and I don't know, I just, just playing without tearing those signifiers apart putting them back together you know into some kind of an assemblage if you will uh is is so much fun and i don't know i just i love that format there's kind of a there's a jouissance to it as well Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it's so much fun and i think that kind of ties into that really kind of the post-structuralists are are very good about you know collapsing that distinction between high and low culture and i love i love mashing those things Mm -hmm. together so much
2: yeah, and you know, there's, there's a pretty strong theoretical tradition behind this. I mean, um, you know, there's um, Levi-Strauss's concept of bricolage, right, where you take all these different bits and pieces of things and you put them together into something that's new and different and unique. Um, there's the um, uh, the situationist strategy of détournement, right, where you take an existing cultural object and then you you know, you scroll some graffiti on it or you put it like a comic book word balloon on top of it and just radically alter the meaning of it. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to that. It's, um, And I think it's a pretty powerful strategy for uh, challenging the kind of fixed and established meanings that, um, that tend to cohere around uh, cultural objects.
1: It's a lot of fun too, um, but I forgot to mention this. So you'll laugh at this. So it was really Morrison and Alan Moore that kind of got me into Spinoza, <laughs> just based on their kind, of, their kind of approach towards ontology that I thought was interesting and, and funny. Like, that's such a weird, <laughs> you know what I mean, way to, to, to get an interest in, in philosophy. But yeah, that was kind of really big for me in terms of getting into his work, which I think has bit unexpected.
2: But. I think that's one of the really cool things about Alan Moore. Is that uh, you know? Even though you know he does, he doesn't have very much in the way of of formal education. He is such a smart guy and just oh, so well read, and just so you know, thoroughly well informed about such such a huge variety of different uh, political and philosophical issues. And. Um, you know he he has these interviews where he says he says like um, oh you know I've only ever read one book of theory I think it was uh, I think it was Roland Barthes it was like the only book of theory that he ever read and yet <laughs> without yeah. ever having read any of that stuff you know he's managed to come to the same conclusions that a lot of these heavy theorists come to and then even better you know find a way to express these theories to you know a pretty broad uh, mainstream audience which I just think is incredible
1: absolutely I, I think that's kind of the what I in a way largely go for here too is to kind of bring bring down the high theory to the level of like you know memes and and things and kind of show that so often you know people are so uh, intimidated by theory but it's oftentimes it's these it helps you have a vocabulary to describe the feelings that you're already sort of having or like things that you've noticed or thoughts that you've had and you just it's just expressed in a different format you know in a different vocabulary etc so that's, that's sort of a mission of the podcast too, is to kind of eliminate that, that fear of, of yep.
2: high theory. And I mean, this is one of the charges that is often leveled against post-structuralism, post-modernism, post-anarchism, all of the post things, right? right. Uh, is that they're, they're supposedly inaccessible. They're just these weird you know, ivory tower things. It's just a lot of jargon that a bunch of professors come up with and that you know, regular people can't understand it. And you know i i have to admit i think there is <laughs> it some, can be, for some sure. there it can be that right <laughs> And there is sometimes an element of truth to that right and so you know one of the one of the projects that that i've been working on for a long time um is to you know to develop a a less jargon heavy way of talking about these ideas you know to right. develop a, a way of speaking about these things that that people can actually read and can actually understand uh because i think it's you know it's a little too easy to just retreat into your into your jargon and just, uh, you know, so you're having this conversation with like, you know, two other people and nobody else is paying attention. Uh, So, you know, that's what I hope to avoid.
1: I really did. uh, The postmodern anarchism book was, was quite good. I really enjoyed it. It was sort of like eating cake a little bit for for me. (laughs) I love kind of that. that.
2: That's one of the nicest things that someone has said about my writing. So (laughs) thank you for that.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, I mean, to kind of give you a bit of context on my own sort of development. So in grads, I guess, let's see. So I had an under, undergrad in English, so I got a little bit of exposure to Derrida, Foucault there. And that just got my, I have, this has been like the last 20 years or so that I've been reading this stuff and thinking about it. And, and now started the podcast about three years ago now to kind of discuss and, and bring these ideas out and kind of make them more accessible. Um, in grad school, it was fu- reading and reading Foucault in particular that kind of turned me in into an or made me th- start to think about anarchism and so that's a legacy that pretty much continues and i think it's it's grown much more and more sophisticated at that and it was really funny too actually i had written this paper about and this was like 2008 so really facebook twitter all the social media stuff was really in its infancy at that point and and was a, to- was a totally different landscape than it than it was than it is today you know there was a lot more optimism that these would be great tools that would kind of be a democratizing force. Obviously, I was, and I fell into that trap too. I was, I was quite wrong in terms of how how liberate, liberatory they would be. But I still think there's yeah, a
2: lot of us were <laughs> right.
1: The, I still think there's a lot of value in in those tools and ways to co-opt those into a, some sort of post-anarchist or anarchist practice to some degree, and you know, inspired by the situationists and and other sort of thinkers and movements. But it's funny, and I had written this paper about looking at, I think it was the Zapatista movement, the EZLN, and like Al-Qaeda and how they were using communication networks to sort of, you know, for coded messaging and all this sort of stuff. And I had actually, I had cited Saul Newman in that paper, and I didn't even realize it until the other day. I was kind of going back and looking through the paper, and I looked through my citations, and there was... Saul Newman, who I had, I had totally forgotten that I had, had even cited him all those years ago. <laughs>
2: wow, well, that's funny.
1: Right? That was an interesting little turn. And like I said, I didn't even realize it until I, even after I had, had spoken with him. And uh, Saul even said he had, he's joined the, there's a Sterner meme group on Facebook. that he Oh, just yeah? joined. So Saul Newman is on Sterner. He's, he's,
2: he's on board with the memes. Okay, <laughs> he is, good, yeah, good.
1: Absolutely right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, uh, I think a lot of us were guilty of that kind of uh, technological utopianism back in the day. It feels strange calling this back in the day, but oh, right. I mean, I was realizing, you know, postmodern, post-modern anarchism, I, I wrote that book almost 20 years ago now. And, you know, in, in terms of information technologies, that's like a lifetime, right? right. I mean, it was yeah, a totally different world exactly. back then. Absolutely. So, you know, back then it, w- it was all new. It was all, it all seemed very innovative. We thought there was a lot of potential in terms of, of free speech, online organizing, you know, helping social movements to develop in interesting ways. And that is still all possible, right? But I think, um, you know, what we had underestimated back then was, and it seems foolish now, but right. uh, we underestimated the, you know, the incredible ability that corporate capitalism has to co-opt anything, right? Including information technologies, social media, all the rest of it. So, um, you know, that I think we didn't adequately account for. Um, but, you know, I still think that there's grounds for hope. Um, I think, you know, this, and to me, this is one of the really interesting things about these, um, these new media and these information technologies is that they can be used for such a wide variety of different purposes. So, you know, yes, it's true. It can be used to make Jeff Bezos another gazillion dollars, and it is used for that, right? But at the same time, it can also be used to circulate radical post-anarchist memes or, you know, anything right. else that you want, so.
1: Yeah, um, I've actually, so a, a lot of people complain about Twitter as sort of this cesspool of, you know, whatever reaction or, you know, um, just kind of, kind of bullshit, right? But I've, uh, I've had a fantastic experience with it. Um, I've met an incredible amount of people. Um, one of, I mean, there's a guy, he, uh, I've been doing, a series of episodes with we're looking at watari's machinic unconscious and this guy he's like a barista at starbucks but he translated machinic unconscious into english and he's just you know is, is
2: on twitter <laughs> and yeah, we connected that way
1: awesome. and uh we've been doing See, and,
2: and here's somebody who without twitter you probably never would have talked like, yeah, to this guy right you exactly. never would have encountered him in a million years yeah
1: absolutely and uh he's extremely accessible and just a, an incredibly smart individual. And so I mean, like you said, that's a connection that I totally never would have made. So definitely there's still that that ability to it's kind of that Deleuzian re-territorialization, deterritorialization mm-hmm. thing, which I think ultimately is moving towards, you know, more deterritorialized forms for whether that's good or bad, you know, remains to be seen. But I think that that kind of move still still is in place.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I've, I've been really impressed to see um, how network technologies can, you know, facilitate these, uh, these interesting kinds of social interactions that I, I don't think would have been possible before. I teach a class on the, the history of computer networks. And um, one time a few years ago when I was teaching it, uh, we were talking about Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web. Right. And so one of my students, my best student that quarter, decided, well, I'm just going to write to Tim Berners-Lee and, you know, (laughs) ask him about it. And Berners-Lee wrote back, right? And so I'm like, well, this is great. You know, this is, first of all, this is why Berners-Lee invented the web so that stuff like this could happen, right? Um, And it seems like he practices what he preaches. So, yeah, Yeah, that's
1: It's been cool, an experience with uh, the podcast and just, you know, I'll, you know, like I just, I feel like I had read, maybe I saw you mentioned on like Saul Newman's Wikipedia page I was like, oh, I should, you know, I'll just see, hey, what's worth a shot? You know, I'll see if someone's willing to come on the podcast. And I've had a lot of success with that. I even, uh, let's see, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that I can get uh, Franco Berardi to come talk about Guattari. I'm mm-hmm. like, <laughs> fingers crossed. But I, like, randomly found his email on some, like, it's so funny, too. It was, like, this random paper that he had published in, like, 2010 that some for some reason had his email address on it. And yeah. I was like... I don't even know if this is the same guy, but yeah. I'm gonna give it yeah. a shot. Give it and a shot. sure enough, like a week later, he's like, "Hey, sorry yep. for the whatever, but yeah, um, yep. I'm, I'm available at this time. You know, let's talk. Send me, a, throw me a date or something." So, yep.
2: it's pretty wild. And you know, I, I've been on the receiving end of some of those emails, and I'm always just delighted. I'm like, "Wow, some <laughs> somebody read that paper, right? yeah, exactly. and actually remembered it. <laughs> it's incredible." Um,
1: but I guess to get back to, and this is a really fun article. I think if you if you enjoy comics, if you enjoy Anarchism and and theory. Um, this is a really enjoyable read. the The Invisibles discussion. So we talked about the Lacanian aspect element of it, but another and we talked a bit about this with Danny. Danny the Street is how this fluidity of identity that is present throughout the the book or the series rather, uh, the Invisibles itself. And uh, maybe we should discuss and kind of maybe a couple of the characters to kind of explore that and how that sort of works because there's a lot of interesting things going on there too in terms of gender and and sexual identity and so forth that i think is is pretty valuable and interesting
2: yeah absolutely um so you know i think um all the main characters in the invisibles um express some interesting ideas about identity and they all do so in, in kind of different ways uh so there's there's king mob uh, so he's he's the kind of provisional leader of the group at the beginning, although their their leadership changes because they have this kind of um, you know, flattened hierarchy where there isn't, you know, a single designated leader. Um, and King Mob, well, he's a meme, right? Literally. <laughs> Very right. True, right? Uh, so you know, this uh, this goes back to the the Gordon riots in the eighteenth century, it's one of the early, you know, prison riots and King Mob was a a graffiti that they would scrawl on the walls there. And then later in the 1960s, um, it became the name of a a magazine for the situationists. And then it became this comic book character, right? So, you know, here's this guy who, you know, who who literally embodies the the concept of the meme and um, doesn't really seem to have any kind of um, fixed identity uh, beyond that. And then you've got um, Ragged Robin, um whose uh, character kind of embodies the the masquerade you know the idea that identity is performance that it's about the the makeup that you put on or the costume or well in her case the you know the leather fetish gear that you put on um <laughs> right. yeah so and um and then lord fanny of course uh, who is the uh kind of um transgender character and um you know and, and in some ways um you know, I think, I think Lord Fanny is especially interesting in the, in the mythology of the comic. They have the idea that um, Lord Fanny was, um, w- was born as a boy or assigned a male gender at birth, but then had to become female in order to become a shaman uh, because that, that gender transition was seen as necessary in order for, for Fanny to become a, a, a practitioner of magic. And uh, and apparently this is something that Grant Morrison is also into that he actually does again practice what he preaches oh, that, yeah. as I understand it that he you know he actually does regard magic as a you know a serious um, kind of ontological force and so um, you know, Lord Fanny I think is very interesting as a character that you know sort of combines um, a very fluid gender identity very interesting non normative sexuality um, and then this. Um, you know, this conception of, of magic as uh, a different kind of semiotics, let's say, right? right. A, different, yeah. a different kind of language, a different, you know, vocabulary for expressing things.
1: The idea that the sigil magic stuff is, is really interesting in the context of semiotics and something that I've found. So there's a, I'll have to send it to you. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's on YouTube. There's a really great talk that Morrison gives and I, feel, I can't remember how long ago it was, but he kind of talks about all this stuff about go about smoking hash and Katmandu and like seeing Mm -hmm. aliens and and all this stuff and about, and they put that in the comic,
2: right? So then he, then he has King mob basically going through an almost identical experience. And so, you know, there's, there's some points where the comic seems pretty autobiographical, or it seems like he's borrowed pretty directly from his own life to, you know, to to create some of those stories.
1: Yeah. uh, I think he even called the invisibles, his, um, a super sigil so mm-hmm. it was kind of his uh, the whole project was this sort of magical enterprise
2: yep yeah the whole the whole thing is one gigantic magic spell so that's
1: pretty cool and you mentioned you mentioned i can't did you mention this already the uh the super context no you mentioned the drug but not the super context mm-hmm. but i think this is an extremely fascinating concept and really talk, talk about the super context in the context of the invisibles.
2: <laughs> okay. Now let, let me get this in. I'm going to provide the context of the super context. Right? Okay, No, I think I've got it. Uh, so, <laughs> so the, the super context is, um, well, first of all, it's a narrative device because it's this, um, it's the ontology that the characters are approaching throughout the, the narrative of the series. Uh, But then it's also a really interesting way for thinking about the um, you know, the three different Lacanian orders that that we were talking about before. And so there's, there's actually kind of an interesting debate about this. You know, some, some people see the, the super context as a return to, to the symbolic order, but I think you have to be careful there. Uh, because you know i I agree that it um, it does involve a return to the symbolic, but it's a it 's a symbolic that 's been purged of ego right so there's no there's no subject centered rationality there's no you know kind of classic autonomous cartesian self that doesn't exist within the super context right so you know I see it as um as a kind of um language or symbolism or semiotics that's been completely purged of, um, of individual subjectivity. And, um, you know, this is an idea that's been bouncing around kind of post-structuralist circles for a while. Even if you go back to the, the late 60s, you know, Foucault had that wonderful essay, What is an Author? And at the end of that essay, he speculates about the possibility of a, a discourse that will circulate without authorship. Right. And so, you know, to me, that's kind of what the super context is, is, you know, we, we don't, we don't need authors, we don't need egos, we don't need this, um, you know, kind of obsolete notion of the, uh, the rational, autonomous individual. But we don't have to sacrifice language and communication for that, right? right. We can still have those things just, you know, take the ego out of it. Uh, so I think it's a pretty interesting idea.
1: What I thought was most interesting you point out from and this is again heavy spoiler alert for the invisibles is the way that king mob right defeats the and I forget the, the main uh, antagonist yeah,
2: the, the, the archon
1: the archon with the the gun that has like the mm-hmm. so the gun yeah. kind of uh, what's it's like a trope and of the kind of gag of you pull the trigger and out comes a flag that says pow or bang or, yeah. or whatever the case may be but in the in the context of the comic that's how the the antagonist is defeated by King mob by, right. By With the, the signifier. A- right. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a little piece of language that does it. And so I, I think that Morrison uses the key drug for that. Right. So they've given the bad guy, the key drug. So then when, when he sees the signifier, right. The, the, you know, the, the signifier of the noise that a gun would make, it's equivalent to an actual gun. Right. So it actually destroys the, you know, the monstrous villain. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff like that throughout the the comics. Um, so yeah, it's, it's got some really interesting ideas about, um, you know, how, how language can be used in a, in a performative way. Right. right. Um, not just as, you know, I think a lot of people in their day to day usage of language, I think of it as a way that we describe things or a way that we communicate with each other, which it also is, of course, but, um, Sometimes people, I think, don't pay enough attention to the performative aspect. It can actually do things with language, and that's something that um, the invisibles, I think, really foregrounds.
1: Right, and it's it's that potential that I think is is so fascinating. And what I really, I guess, ultimately, that's like the what I find really interesting in terms of study is like I was mentioning with with posting on Twitter or, or memes or what have you. Like that, the potentiality for that to take on you know, a greater significance in terms of uh, some type of praxis or some type of yeah. movement to collapse, you know, whatever the the uh, symbolic order that we've, uh, it's been established by capital.
2: You know, when I think about it, the, what do you call it? The memosphere, uh, <laughs> right. the, you know, the, the environment of memes, it, it sounds a lot like the super context, actually. It really because, does. Yeah. You know, here are these, here are these signifiers, these pieces of information that circulate Without authorship, right, you generally have no idea who the original creator of a meme was. If the meme has done its job, then it's just something that just, you know, pops from one computer to another, um, you know, without regards to authorship. Um, So, you know, it seems like there actually is this sort of implementation of of that idea uh, that you can have, um, you know, discourse that circulates um, without, you know, any kind of um, stable individual standing behind that discourse.
1: Or authority right um, yeah you know a random person can make a meme that is that contains something that gets people thinking like and and so that I mean what's interesting too is I guess this more grounded concept of what magic is and how it operates for people like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison it is sort of this like it's communication it's that's what like sigil symbol like there's probably like a root word that connects those two ideas it's at, at some mm-hmm. point right
2: yeah and i think uh um, you know this is uh, one way in which morrison and Moore are quite similar as comic book writers you know i think they they both understand what they're doing as performative i think they're both you know they're they're using words to to make things happen to actually generate change in the world and um and I actually think they're both quite good at it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and sometimes I think they even, you know, surprise themselves with how, how effective they are. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm, I'm working on this new paper about um, Alan Moore's V for Vendetta. And so, you know, there was this really interesting moment um, after the, the film version of V for Vendetta came out uh, in the early 2000s. Which more hated without ever having seen it, but uh, in any case, uh, one of the <laughs> right. effects of the film was to make that um, you know that that Guy Fox mask incredibly popular. So now right. everybody wanted to have that, and so it started showing up at, at Occupy Wall Street, and they were using it in the Arab Spring, and you know then there was the um, the anonymous um, hacker collective, and they they took it on as their symbol, and so you know before you know it, this thing is just showing up all over the place. And Alan Moore actually went to one of the Occupy protests. I think it was Occupy St. Paul's Cathedral. And he says, you know, it's it's kind of a trip when there's this thing that you think you just sort of made up and put into a right. comic book. And then the next thing you know, it's out there in the streets and it's reality. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: you know, he actually sort of made that happen. That's a sort of magic in the context of the way that they describe it, I think. Which
2: yep. is yeah. yeah I feel like both, both of those guys um, and, and some of the other more thoughtful comic book writers, you know, when they you know when they when they write a book like V for Vendetta or like The Invisibles I feel like they actually are casting a spell right like they're they're actually doing some kind of a magical invocation and sort of inviting the audience to participate in the in the creation of that uh, that invocation
1: so it's in- interesting to to go back flip back to Doom Patrol early on I think in the first trade paperback for Doom Patrol there's a similar scenario where they defeat the antagonist with a kind of a nonsense statement. Um, mm-hmm. There were, I feel like they, it was something like in some, they had to like make up this irrational thing response to the thing and that kind of unraveled. And that was the, the end of the antagonist. And I forget the details of it, but I always thought that was a really brilliant thing. And it kind of feels like Morrison kind of went and did something even more interesting with the invisibles with that same sort of premise.
2: Yeah, I think uh, you know one of the interesting things about this strategy is I I think that uh, you know authors like this can, you know, they can kind of pinpoint some of the some of the fissures, some of the fault lines in our in our semiotic system, the weak spots, and then they can you know they can find these points where, you know, a contradictory statement or a kind of logic puzzle can just sort of open up that fissure and you know reveal some of the you know some of the broader um, gaps that exist uh, within our within our structures of language and thought. You mentioned a bit in the,
1: in the piece on the invisibles of an ontological anarchy, which I think is very similar to kind of what what, what Saul Newman discusses is this ontological element of anarchy. What, what would you say, if, what does an, an ontological anarchism look like?
2: You know, this is one of the ways in which I think um, post-anarchism can move us beyond the you know, the more traditional type of, of anarchism you know it used to be back in the 19th century the early 20th century you know there was a at the time quite radical critique of capitalism and critique of state power and those of course are still vitally important uh, but with post anarchism you you have this idea that well in addition to challenging the state and challenging capital we also need to to challenge the dominant notion of reality right the dominant concept of of, of what the real is uh, because those other things, you know, those more traditional forms of political and economic power, they're supported by that conventional ontology, right? right? It's that, it's that sense of reality, that kind of conservative sense of reality. That's what enables these other oppressive systems. And so you really want to go to the heart of the matter, right? And find a way to, you know, to critique um, that, that ontology that stands behind capitalism and state power uh, so I'm, I'm particularly interested in those um, in those forms of uh, anarchist thinking that um, that seem to be able to do that. I know I mentioned in the in the Invisibles paper uh, the work of Hakeem Bey, You know, he came up with this really interesting um, idea of the the temporary autonomous zone. And
1: very timely, well, it, right? <laughs> very timely. Yeah, I was just <laughs> yeah, going to say perfectly. it's you know
2: it's it's another case where something that you know this guy wrote about it an interesting book a couple of decades ago now shows up in the streets of Seattle, right? Where you Manifest literally itself, have people yeah. creating these autonomous zones, right? And in a, in a way that looks actually quite similar to what, uh, what Hakeem Bey had described. Um, so, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that I, that I have in mind. Um, what the situation is called, um, psychogeography, finding a way to reconceptualize um, physical space, geographic space, architecture, Ah, uh, finding a way to you know to rethink an urban environment and turn it into something with a radically different meaning. Right. right? I mean, it's the same four blocks of downtown Seattle, but now it means something completely different, right? Because they've completely revised the uh, the uh, the signification of that territory.
1: And definitely something I recall from. I think you referenced this in in the book, and I remember from Symbolic Death and exchanges, Bojard saying you know you you can't defeat capitalism on the on within the real itself yep. you, you can't fight you're not going to win that battle on the term on the ground of the real this has to go into the you know perhaps symbolically there's there's an opportunity or there's a you know a, a fracture there that we can exploit
2: yeah and so um there's a lot of interesting um things in, in baudrillard but uh, one of the ones that always fascinated me was the the idea that you know all of these power structures that seem so monolithic, that seem so absolute, that seem like we couldn't possibly challenge them. If if you look at them very carefully, you realize that they actually don't have much reality. Um, and so this is something that that Baudrillard says, for example, about money, right? That money doesn't actually exist. That once upon a time it was it was gold and then it was a piece of paper that claimed to represent gold. And now it's some numbers in a computer that claimed to represent the piece of paper that claims to represent gold. <laughs> right. So how is that right. real? Right. There's, exactly. there's no reality to that. Uh, and then it's the same kind of thing with, with political power, right. Uh, that it's all just smoke and mirrors. Um, and I think that our current president is an excellent example of this, right. right. That, you know, there's just, there's absolutely no substance to it. And so, you know, if you just, if you pull aside that curtain, if you can actually, Manage to get people's attention long enough to say, "Hey, the emperor has no clothes." Then suddenly you realize that you know this is just um, ephemeral, right? That there actually is no significant um, reality to that to that political power that seems so overwhelming.
1: I had this idea, and I, I mean, this is not, this is not novel or, or anything like that. But I was in reading the Baudrillard chapter of of the post anarch or uh, postmodern anarchism book. I had this, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot is I've been obsessed really with this relationship between desire and capitalism and, and so forth. And obviously, you know, Baudrillard discusses that so eloquently and, and does such a great job of exploring that element of the simulated elements of, of capitalism, whether it be money or, or power or what have you, the way that those things are operating. I had this idea that, What markets do now is no longer are they regulating prices. What they're regulating is the flows of our desire itself.
2: And Mm -hmm.
1: I think you see that expressed in the way that people line up for, you know, whether it be Christmas shopping or whether it be even more so is something like, I don't know if you're familiar with sneaker culture or, or things like that, where companies release these, the, it's this artificial scarcity of, yep. we're going to release this limited number of this product and then people line up for that. So it's like, that's the method of, markets are like a method of control and, and directing flows of desire for capital at this point, yep. rather than like this maybe more antiquated notion, this real <laughs> idea of, of
2: yeah. mar- you know, regulating um, these goods or what have you, right? You know, I think there's a lot to that. Um, so a couple of things. You know, first of all, this this idea of artificial scarcity, you know, I think it's, it's one of the sneakiest tricks that capitalism has at its disposal, and they've been using this for a long time. Um, look at the diamond industry. You know, diamonds are actually not naturally scarce, but you've got De Beers and a few other big companies that just make them scarce so that they can keep the prices up. And then... Well, there's all kinds of examples. You know, you you mentioned sneakers. That's a good one. I used to be really into these uh, collectible card games, Magic: The Gathering, where you know I've got some cards that are extra rare, and so of course those those cost more. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of that. Uh, but I'm I'm really intrigued by this idea that um, you know that the main function of markets now might be to, to regulate desire or even to generate desire right, right, in yeah. some cases, right? To, to, you know, to create desires that people didn't have before or didn't realize that they, that they had before. You know, as, as I get more and more into Lacan, since I wrote Postmodern Anarchism, I've, I've done more work on Lacan, and uh, it just seems to me that you know, desire is such a fundamental part of the human experience yes. and, unfortunately, so easy to manipulate. And you know one of, one of the ideas I, I take from Lacan is that you know desire is is predicated on the notion that it cannot be fulfilled right there 's something fundamentally masochistic about it right yeah, so de- exactly. desire it 's this void right you 're never going to be able to satisfy it it 's always going to be there. No matter how much you have of whatever it is, sex, drugs, rock and roll, sneakers, you know, matching together, whatever it is, right, comic how books. How many comic books,
1: right, Earn in your garage?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah, so, you know, 10,000 and hey, I still want more, right? So, <laughs> and I just feel like, you know, contemporary capitalism is so adept at, uh, at taking advantage of that, right? At Absolutely. Saying, okay, you know, here's this this bottomless pit of desire. And so, we're just going to facilitate people, you know, continuing to try to fill up that pit with the knowledge that, of course, they're never going to succeed.
1: My hot take is that, okay, so you always, you hear that trope of capitalism is aligned with human nature. I think that it is in, you know, wipe out the human nature reading of that, but what they really are, I think, are getting at has some truth in it, in that desire is, the, is what they're describing whenever they mean right human nature. Yep. And so... I don't know, I just, I I always thought that was an interesting kind of like against the grain reading, but to apply Baudrillard to this too in the context of of the world we live in now with digital products is now there's even, now that we can, we've escaped the real and there's the virtual, there's an unlimited, there's an infinite like tunnels of new, you know, um, capitalism can keep creating, finding new crevices. Yep. And just keep on going and proliferating different forms of desire. I mean, you see this with things like in-app purchases or the, you right. know what I mean, like outfit skins and things for video yeah. game characters and all of that, that just endlessly.
2: Yeah. Commodities that literally don't exist. Exactly. And so, you know, I see people like playing one of these massively multiplayer online games and they're, they're you know, they're buying a new outfit for their avatar. Right. So they're, they're buying a, and Baudrillard would love this, right. They're, they're buying a non-existent set of clothing <laughs> for their non-existent character that is, is in this game. Right. But, you know spending. Well, I was going to say real money, Real but money, as I, right? as I mentioned a moment ago, money's not real either, right? So they're spending fake money on fake clothes for their fake avatar. Uh, so yeah, it's really bizarre. But, you know, the other weird thing is that at the same time, this has led to what you might call a, a crisis of scarcity. Because all of those quote-unquote products, all of those things that are data, that are information they're not scarce, right? Because you can reproduce digital data infinitely. And so once again, you know, they have to create an artificial scarcity. Um, And so, you know, you get these ridiculous things like, well, here's one example. Okay, so I'm a history professor. Uh, We historians, um, you know, we use the Chicago style of citation. And so whenever I'm teaching a research seminar, I assign my students to get a copy of this, this book, the <laughs> Turabian book that's got the, the citation style in it. It's from University of Chicago Press. Well, you know, I used to have them buy a physical copy. I don't really feel comfortable doing that now in the age of COVID. Right. And so I, I asked my librarian, I said, you know, could you try to buy a digital book of it, right, so that then they could just get it online. No, University of Chicago Press will not sell you a digital copy of that because it's too big of a cash cow for them. Oh God. <laughs> so I'm like, let me get this straight. So they'll, they'll sell you a paper copy of the book, which is useless to students because the library is closed and they can't right. actually go and look at it, right? But they will not sell you a digital book that the students actually could use. So uh, you know, that's, it's an artificial scarcity that absolutely. they're trying to create yeah, there. That's, so.
1: that's a great example. <laughs> oh, man. In terms of the invisibles, we we may have exhausted uh, the bits that I wanted to go over. Let me just make sure. Okay, ah, one one interesting take here, and I think this goes back to Lacan, whom you mentioned, whom I think over the last couple of years has been. I've just been obsessed with Lacan. I will uh, do respect to, to the best of us. <laughs> all res, all due respect to Deleuze and Guattari, as you know, I enjoy their thought, but to me, Lacan is is the king. He's the king mob. Yep
2: yeah he is no i I totally agree with that yeah um, and um, you know particularly when I was working on my my most recent book i was I was using a lot of Lacanian theory, so psychoanalytic media criticism is basically the the theoretical model that I was using for that book and it's kind of interesting because um, Lacan obviously was a a psychoanalyst, and you know the the people who who thoroughly reject Lacan are professional psychologists and psychiatrists, right? Like, they, they don't want to go anywhere near it. But once you get outside of those professions, right, you get outside of psychology and psychiatry, people love Lacan, right? Literary theorists, film critics, historians, philosophers, sociologists, right? Everybody else loves it. So I just, I think that's kind of an interesting tension that, um, you know, right. in, in what you might think of as Lacan's own field, he's a total pariah, I, I know, right? right? But, like, everybody else is totally into it.
1: I wonder, too, and I... I actually guessed myself on another podcast earlier this week about kind of where Freud is, why Freud should be sort of maybe not, you know, not entirely defended, but you know, people, you shouldn't dismiss Freud off so offhandly. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe that there's an aspect of, you know, because psychoanalysis was so much bigger, I think in in France and Europe than it ever became here. And I think there's probably, you know, the American sort of, Empiricist, you know what's like the empiricist, or like what is it, the uh, the Henry James, yeah. yeah, the uh, yeah. the kind of pragmatism, the American yep. Pra- yep. pragmatic el- element, and also the aggressive way that capitalism functions in this country. I think is sort of that's more that that's the like dividing line that yeah. the kind of kept psychoanalysis from really taking root here.
2: No, I think that's spot on. You know, psychoanalysis um, was always really a continental phenomenon. You know, it's it's really the European continent. that That's where it thrived. And, um, you know, I, I think you've got a good analysis of why it did not really take off in the U.S. because, um, you know, in the United States, I think you're right. It's all about pragmatism. It's about practicality. It's about, well, not to put too fine a point on it you know, finding strategies of psychological treatment that will keep people in the capitalist labor market, right, right. and just keep them, exactly. you know, functioning, working, consuming. Uh, they don't have to be happy, but, you know, as long as they're functional workers and consumers, right. you know, that's, that's what you know, American culture wants. And so, uh, naturally, they'll be drawn to things like cognitive behavioral therapy, right, that has that much more uh, pragmatic orientation, yeah, so I think that I think that's a good way to understand that uh, that pretty striking difference.
1: What is interesting too, so again, just via via Twitter, I've met a handful of actual practicing analysts here in the states, and typically Lacan's theories n- not always that relevant for them i mean although they will sometimes take bits and pieces of, of Lacan's theory it seems like the the freudian or like the people that are influenced by F- freud like whitehead and beyond like some of that stuff is is actually more utilized in the therapeutic practice um but but that's been cool to kind of because i've also had oh, yeah. someone like i don't know if you're familiar i've had todd McGowan on on the show a couple of times actually.
2: oh yeah I, I cited him in my new book. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, he's doing some interesting work on on uh, on Lacan and applying it to to film theory. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, so actually- you were talking about this need to to sort of defend Freud or defend psychoanalysis. What I see happening with Freud is something that's that's actually quite similar to what often happens with Marx. Is oh, that right. people find one idea from a thinker that they don't like, and they take that as grounds to reject the entire theory. Right. right? So it's like, oh, Freud was wrong about. Penis envy, right? So, <laughs> okay, okay. so, so, th- so, therefore, all of psychoanalysis is yeah. to be dismissed, right? Right. Well, I agree with the first part. He was wrong about penis envy, but that doesn't mean you throw out the entire theory, right? Uh, so, I just think it's interesting that you know, there's some some of these theories, like like psychoanalysis and like Marxism, that seem susceptible to that, where we have this ridiculous expectation, right, that the theory has to be perfect. You know, it has right. to be absolutely flawless. Otherwise, we just dismiss the whole thing.
1: Yeah, uh, M- McGowan's pointed out I think very astutely too that you know what one kind of very impressive thing about Freud is that he actually published several of the cases you know discussed cases where he failed. Yep, which you yep. you never see. Although, like yeah. I was reading a Freud biography that was very unkind in in, in many regards too. So,
2: yeah, um, and this is what I always tell my students when I'm encouraging them to take Freud seriously is that, yeah, Freud frequently failed, but he failed in interesting ways. Right. I, th- I think we can actually learn a lot from his failures. And I think he tried to learn from his failures, right? And when you're, you know, when you're doing something like psychoanalysis, where your main object of study is the unconscious, which is something that, you know, it's like, like the Lacanian real. It's inaccessible to us for the most part, right? So, you know, you're bound to fail, right? It would not be reasonable to expect that that's going to be an unmitigated success, right? So accept your failure, learn from it, right? And build the theory. Uh, And I think that's a perfectly reasonable strategy.
1: So I think, at least for me, I mean, I think this is largely true, of particularly America is we have that sort of of pragmatic or that rationalism so ingrained in us. But I think for me, it's what I think is so fascinating about psychoanalysis is I think for the longest time, I as well had that sort of, you know, people are making rational decisions or like all you have to do is, you know, present someone with evidence of this and that and they'll say, oh, okay, they'll reevaluate. But I think now you look at the world and I don't see how you could possibly understand the world with any kind of logic yeah. <laughs> without some sort of, without there being an, un- an unconscious and, you know, that yes. depending on, you know, define that however you like, I think that there's got, there, ha- there must be some something to it at yeah. some level.
2: Yeah, to me, this is the real revolutionary aspect of psychoanalysis because, you know, for, for centuries prior to Freud, it had been all about rationality, right? Reason was up on this pedestal ever since the Enlightenment, right? And, and I think people, our entire culture assumed this, right? That people are fundamentally rational, that they will make rational decisions as long as they have good information, right? That um, we can construct rational Political and social and cultural systems, and then you know maybe fix them as they go wrong, right. but everything will basically be okay. And particularly in the United States right now, that is so obviously not true, right? So you know I think um, this I, I think we're we're likely to see a kind of um, renaissance in psychoanalysis, right? Because we we desperately need a way to understand the irrational aspect of human human thought and human behavior. Right. You know, and psychoanalysis hopefully can can give us this. I mean, I just saw you know they're they're talking about like reopening the schools, and Trump's press secretary said, "Well, the science can't stand in the way of reopening <laughs> the schools," and I'm like, "What?" Oh yeah, <laughs> I just I, I don't even know where to start with that.
1: I know. Oh, I saw some post this morning on Twitter that I was just like, "Oh," <laughs> makes me want to go back to bed. Uh, somebody mm-hmm. was um, somebody was castigating, and relevant to this was like the teachers not wanting to you know should strike or something like that and this person was like oh do it then or like and someone else was commenting that the teachers were entitled and so forth and i was just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh my god I, it just yep i don't even know how to respond to that it's so uh yeah i don't know if you're familiar with the term blackpil, black pill uh, black black pilling but it's just
2: like oh uh, yeah i get a lot of that so I, i'm also <laughs> the president of the faculty union at Cal uh, Poly, so yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm neck deep in all of those conversations. Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: Well, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned, uh, to to tie this back to the, the article on the invisibles, you mentioned, you know, via Lacan, the law as as part of the symbolic order mm-hmm. and the invisibles being attacked from the imaginary. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that relationship? Mm-hmm. And, and I think you even said there's a little bit of overlap or there's some disagreement in terms of, of how that role
2: functions. Sure. There's, the, there's this debate about, um, you know, sort of where the characters in the, in, in the invisibles fall or where they operate or or how they function. And um, so I, I don't think you're likely to be able to, you know, kind of pigeonhole them into one of the three Lacanian orders, right? They, they go back and forth. They, they move between them um so i think it's more about the you know the ways in which they occupy those those three different orders um so you know i'd say that um typically when they when they're confronting something like the law or government or you know a fixed political institution uh they tend to move into the imaginary as a way to challenge that right um, and then when they're, you know, when they're working with more potentially uh, liberatory or emancipatory forms of language, then they might be moving more into the into the symbolic. Uh, and I think it's good to have that flexibility, right, uh, that you don't want to just um, limit yourself in terms of your uh, your political tactics or your your mode of communication. You know, you need to have a variety of different um, options, um, Available to you. Uh, that's why, in the you know, in the in the new paper I'm working on about uh, view for vendetta, I'm talking about the the concept of the the floating signifier, you know, a signifier that can have a very wide variety of of different meanings. And um, you know, the the Guy Fawkes mask that we're we we're talking about earlier is a good example of that. right It's been appropriated by all these different political movements in a very mm-hmm. wide variety of different contexts. Um, so you know, I think that kind of um, that kind of semiotic flexibility um, is very important for people who want to be able to have effective, meaningful political action um, in our, in our present context.
1: You've seen too a similar phenomenon with the, you know, with the recent Joker film, the Joaquin Phoenix film, that com- came out within the last year or so, a lot of people, you know, people in Chile or Lebanon or, you know, people like all across the globe are, are, are appropriating the symbol in a very similar fashion. The way that the guy fox masks were used and i had this idea to take the guy fox mask and put the joker makeup on the guy fox oh mask i love as that this, uh,
2: yeah no that, that sounds like a great to, mashup Absolutely. exactly
1: so like that and that's an example of the kind of like i don't know what it is but i love that kind of mm-hmm.
2: i don't
1: know there's something fun about that game playing yep. with those symbols that i just and that kind of same mechanism i think is present in, in memes or or posting or or, or whatever you know, whatever it, you have, it's it's you
2: empowering, know. I really think it's empowering, right because you know here you're you're basically asserting your power to take existing symbols and then recombine them into something that's new and different and unique and has has a totally different meaning from what it originally had, and um you know that that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to do actually, so yeah, it and really I think is. yeah it is.
1: There's a, like I said, there's an un, undeniable, I think, joissance about that. Feel I don't know. It's a, a positive, fun. I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. it's play. It's, I don't know. Yep. That's something that I've always found enjoyable or cool about the post-structuralist and post-modernism is, is that ability to sort of play with signifiers and, and create something entirely new and pull things apart and re, yep. you know, reassemble them.
2: And I, I think it's crucial to maintain that playful attitude. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much in the world that's just awful, right? I mean, you know, the the world is on fire. You know, we look around, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's race riots, there's COVID, there's, you know, massive structural inequalities and structural racism. And it's like, that, that can be completely debilitating, right? If you're just coming at that with a more traditional kind of, you know, serious activist perspective, you're going to get burned out. You know, right. you have, you have to, Find some way to maintain some sense of playfulness in that, which is challenging. Right? It's not That's easy to true, do that, sure. but but I think it's crucial because otherwise, you know, yeah, you just get exhausted.
1: I think yeah, har- harnessing the that libidinal element mm-hmm. is is one thing that maybe leftist movements haven't done in the past so or that well, yeah. Obviously, I think the situationists maybe
2: mm-hmm. were the best. Yeah, I was, at I was just thinking of them. Integrating- they were pretty good at it. Yeah.
1: And I think we could really use a a new situationist type, or a a different approach. You know, taking some elements of what they did and and you know, and utilizing that as part of a more you know overall revolutionary. I don't know. I don't want to say necessary program, but approach or tactics, or I don't know. I I think you can't ignore that element. Um, Aesthetics are not everything, but they are important, right? Mm -hmm. Like your politics can't be all aesthetics but you can't deny that aesthetics the the value of them or the the potency that they can have
2: you know yeah I mean? yeah so you know i think it's it's kind of tricky to find that balance uh, right. because you know we've seen cases where you know people try to develop a politics that is entirely aesthetics and that's fascism right, right? Yeah, exactly. so you know you, you have to watch out obviously for that Certainly. but uh, but you know I, I don't think it's good to go the other way either right where you have you know a politics that is um that is completely divorced from aesthetics, because then you know how do you engage people? How do you right. actually you know build a movement um, based on that? You know you have to have something that appeals to people. You know not just um, on the rational level, but on this more kind of visceral level. So I, I think you need aesthetics for that.
1: I've said this a lot. It's you've often you often see the that dialectic as proposed by you know most kind of mainstream thinkers is that capitalism is associated with abundance and socialism or any kind of communist communal living is is seen as lack mm-hmm. that's how they're thought of so i think we need to to you have to defeat that idea somehow yep
2: absolutely and,
1: and take and take some figure out how to integrate something libidinal and use desire for something for a revolutionary pro- yep. project of some type obviously yep. that's the question for us right but yeah i think it's if you're if your movement isn't taking that into account or your approach isn't taking that into account i think that you're you're definitely it's a a significant weakness in being able to defeat capitalism because it is so like we'd said it's so slippery and always able to re-territorialize anytime there's like anytime there's a little gap it can fill yeah, that gap absolutely
2: so well. And it's, it's, it's so clever at making these completely outrageous claims um, and then making it difficult for people to challenge these claims. You know, like, like this idea that capitalism is supposedly associated with abundance. Right. You know, and this and, and this goes back to Adam Smith, actually, right? He wrote about this in, in The Wealth of Nations, you know, that if you have division of labor and you have each person, you know, doing this little part of the economic production process, uh, then it would supposedly add up to this great abundant wealth. Well, of course, what he didn't address, and what basically no liberal has addressed since then, at least to my satisfaction, <laughs> right. is the distribution question, right? So, okay, there's an abundance of wealth, which is now, you know, concentrated in the hands of this tiny, tiny elite, and then you know everybody else is left um, scrambling around for the scraps. Uh, so, you know, if that if that's your concept of abundance, okay, yeah, yeah capitalism right. can achieve that kind of abundance, but no, thank you, that's not that's not what I'm looking for, and then. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to even have any kind of comprehensible conversation about socialism in this country. I mean, I look, I look at the news. And, uh, apparently, Joe Biden is a socialist. So <laughs> right. uh, who I'm not, knew? He's, like a,
1: <laughs> he's a hardcore Maoist. He's ready to lead, yeah, right? <laughs> leading the long march from Delaware to to San Francisco. Yeah, and I,
2: yeah, it's, oh, it's just bizarre. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I'm a European historian, right? And so I, you know, I study societies that actually have some kind of a left wing right. tradition. And so, you know, these people like like Biden, or, or even Obama, right, who, who in this country are, are labeled as socialists by the right, these would be considered, you know, really? centrist candidates in Europe, or, or even center-right in some yeah, cases, like Biden would be considered a center-right candidate.
1: It's pretty wild, uh, that, that difference. My idea is just the, the isolation, the separation of the two oceans has really been, a, you know what I mean? That's kind of been a bulwark against... Yep the way that immigration is, is, is regulated as well. You know what I mean? You just don't have the way Europe is. So everything's so close to one another travel is obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, everything's connected and so forth that sort of frothing up of different ideas and approaches plus the historical element too. Right. I think that's one, one leg up. The Europeans have is a more, a better, more grounded context of what history is and how it works as opposed to this kind of totally, symbolic or uh this uh no it's a it's a simulated history that we have mm-hmm. yeah. here that yeah. into. No, that's
2: that's true and so actually i was um well i've been recently discussing uh this controversy about the confederate memorials you know all the statues that are coming down and the confederate flags that are being torn down and so forth and you know some of the people i was i was talking to said well but you know but they're but they're but they're tearing down history Trying to be patient. I said, I said, well, no, it's not history because there's zero context, right? Right. You know, there's there's a statue of some some white guy who was probably a slave owner and he's on his horse and he's, you know, about to ride into battle to defend slavery, but there's no context for that, right? And there's a plaque that's got his name and the dates that he lived, right? That's it, right? So that's that that's not history, right? That's veneration of this, you know, this random historical figure and an implied Veneration of all of the reprehensible values that that guy held. Uh, so I don't see that as history. Actually, right.
1: um, history has been so. That's what history is. Is thought of is just like history is names and dates and and events that happened. Yep. And that's it. And we don't obviously that behooves capitalism to remove any kind of context for anything or or the way that history actually
2: functions. Yeah. You know, I teach a course on historiography, and I usually start with that. I'm like, yeah. You know, a lot of people who are not historians will tell you, oh, yeah, history is really boring, right? Because it's (laughs) all these names and dates and battles and places, and it's just a lot of boring facts that we have to memorize. And I say, if that's what history was, then I would agree with you 100%. (laughs) Luckily, it's not, right? So it's about the analysis, the interpretation, developing discourses and arguments about the meaning of all those facts and dates and events and so forth. Um, And so, yeah, on on a good day I can convey that and then people can see that, yeah, that's, that's actually the far more interesting uh, part of historical study.
1: So I'll ask you a a self-serving question here since you did reference historiography. So I've been having, I've had this idea for a book that I, I think is really good and what my idea is here is to what i want to do is put together a history of the post structuralists and in terms of more so the uh kind of the rivalries the disagreements the little interesting personal anecdotes that they had because you know someone like lacan has so many bizarre
2: <laughs> and hilarious
1: stories yep. or like he's such a sort of domineering character in real life that I think is funny, but also like random stuff. Like I, I remember reading articles about how, but you would send his now students to disrupt Deleuze's lectures. And I think those <laughs> yeah. little things yeah, yeah. like that is so yep. interesting to me and so yeah. funny and enjoyable to read about those like little personal yep. experiences well, between them. So. I,
2: I would read that book. I mean, <laughs> right? that, that, that sounds fascinating to me. Yeah. That, that sounds like a great idea. I remember when I was in graduate school and I was, um, Uh, I was taking a a course on theory and um, we were talking about, you know, one of those endless um, arguments between uh, Foucault and uh, Derrida. And it was characterized as a, a a domestic spat among (laughs) Parisian intellectuals. I just thought, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Um, And yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff and um, you know, it makes for a, for a compelling narrative, right? I think it's, I think it's, um, and I'm sure that those stories could also be used to, to shed light on their ideas as well, right? right? Because, you know, generally when you have those kind of anecdotes and those tensions and debates and conflicts, you know, there's, you know the, it usually relates in some fashion to the, the more philosophical kind right. of, uh, of discourse that's, that's going on at the same time. So, yeah, I, I think that would be a lot of fun.
1: There's, a, there's some h- hilarious anecdotes about Lacan visiting heidegger (laughs) and Mm -hmm. i forget forget it was like maybe they're driving in the car and Lacan liked to drive fast uh and so he's like hauling ass in his car and like (laughs) uh heidegger's wife is like freaking out and Heidegger's (laughs) just kind of sitting there and just stuff like that is so funny and then there's another story with him like uh Lacan is going because he was a huge heidegger fan actually and uh Lacan is like going on and on, and all this theory, and Heidegger is just kind of sitting there. Like, you can't tell if he was even listening or yeah. or paying attention, no, he, according he, he, to the people in the
2: room and stuff. He's busy projecting himself concernfully <laughs> towards death, right?
1: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Heidegger.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but anyway, to get us back to, I guess, to wrap up the invisibles kind of component of the discussion, we talked a little bit about the sexual in the invisibles, mm-hmm. which I think is definitely an interesting element of it and i very forward thinking of of morrison to to delve into that stuff especially in the in the context of the early 1990s i was curious if you had had any exposure to his other book the filth which i think gets even more sexuality is even a far more uh, <laughs> a huge topic of, of or focus of that book
2: i actually have not read that one and um it's kind of weird because I think I've read most of his other ones, but uh, somehow never got around to the filth. So, yeah, I'm gonna make a note. I definitely need to check that one out.
1: It's very much. It's it could be. You know what I mean. It could have actually very well fit into the uh, the Invisibles. It's very much in that same mm-hmm. that same Morrison style, quite a bit in terms of the way that the characters operate and that kind of dualist. Like the you know how in the Invisibles they kind of slip into the other. Uh, other type of reality i forget even what Mm -hmm. what it's called off the top of my head but it it sort of has that same play but it's again the filth so it's all this kind of grotesque sexual weirdness going on in typical morrison fashion Mm
0: -hmm. so just kind of
1: curious um there's even like there's panels of the book where somehow these giant sperm or like the people are like the the panel is people running to escape these giant spermatozoa that are kind of floating through the air.
2: <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Morrison. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the imagery is pretty pretty wild. Yeah. But to move us, we'll kind of spend the rest of the the episode looking at at the actual book, Postmodern Anarchism. You start off sort of describing Nietzsche's influence, and which you often, I mean. I've heard people say that or argue that Nietzsche is kind of the marks for anarchists in a way, which I think is, Interesting. can be, which can be sort of, and you talk about this too, this sort of, um, sort of dualist or this kind of opposition within Nietzsche between this sort of anti-anarchist and anti-socialist stuff, but also like at least ontologically how much his project sort of influences anarchism.
2: Yeah, so this is what's so fascinating to me about um, a figure like Nietzsche is that on the one hand, you know, he he completely rejects all forms of socialist thinking. You know, he denounces anarchism, Marxism. He often mixes up the two, right? Uh, He doesn't necessarily seem to be all that well-informed about the, you know, real debates within radical politics that were contemporary with him. But on the basis of his limited knowledge, he completely rejects that entire radical tradition, and yet, his ideas seem to provide the basis for an interesting and, in my view, innovative way of rethinking anarchist political philosophy. So, I guess I like a challenge. You know, I like yeah, to take right. somebody who, who stands up and says, you know, I hate anarchy, and then <laughs> you, use that person and use their philosophy as, uh, you know, as, the, as the basis for, uh, for some kind of uh, anarchist thinking.
1: And talking with with Saul, he was uh, he was all kind of saying, "Well, you, um because I'm a big fan of Stirner as well, and mm-hmm. I don't know how, how much you're interested in him at all." But he was kind of like, you know, Stirner is doing a lot of the same things as Nietzsche, but without that kind of weird aristocratic patrician sensibility. Yep, so you can kind of like yeah. get a lot of the same things without all that extra baggage. Yeah.
2: That sounds right. Yeah, I like Stirner as well. And with Nietzsche, you know, a lot of it goes back to his background as a classical philologist, right? And so, you know, he spent so much time, you know, most of his early career studying the the classical Greek and Roman cultures. And I feel like he internalized a lot of those, um, you know, kind of uh, aristocratic values from the ancient world. Right. Yeah. Well, and even wrote about it, right? Like in the first yeah. essay, The Genealogy of Morals. So, yeah, I think that's that's definitely something that's uh, specific to To Nietzsche, and then yeah, you don't really get that kind of aristocratic focus um, so much in Stirner.
1: You might find this interesting. So, I have recently talked to someone who's again a practicing analyst, and and I get this an an egoist Hegelian. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Right? And I was like, wow, how do you, how does that exactly work? Yeah. But um, I think, you know, I don't know how much of a fan of Hegel you are, I I think typically anarchists are not. Yeah, not not so much. Even though, I I mean, I'm sort of interested just in general about philosophy and theory. What I think is particularly fascinating about Hegel and even applies a bit to Stirner is how much they sort of, or particularly Hegel is a a thinker that deals with consciousness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of his ideas do fit, there is like a psychoanalytic element to them. Mm-hmm. And even then, further to to Stirner as well, that sort of psychoanalytic egoism or something like that has some kind of value potentially from that different angle, other other than just anarchism or or what have you.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I can see that. You know, when, when you realize that, oh, the the phenomenology is all about you know spirit gaining consciousness of itself. Right. It's it's this story of how you know spirit attains this this self-consciousness. I mean, that does sound like a psychological phenomenon, and I think it also does pertain to, to ego, right? It's like that, that old joke about Hegel, that, oh yeah, there's this world historical teleological process that goes throughout all of human history, and the ultimate culmination of that process is George Hegel,
1: <laughs> right? That,
2: that's, like the, that's the destination of history, right? So yeah, it could be uh, ego, maybe in the in the bad sense.
1: Right. The Prussian state as the as the end, end-all, be-all of German idealism, right? Which I think the, you, the, the, I had heard pers- he actually the, really thought that.
2: Yeah, I know. I'm like, how how could you actually write that with a straight face? <laughs> it's like, oh, the the perfect ethical idea is the 19th century, the early 19th century Prussian state. Okay,
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, you kind of talked about how Nietzsche is sort of there's maybe perhaps three three strands that kind of are pillars here for this kind of post-anarchism. The first being Nietzsche. We talked about sort of his, the baggage of him. You you mentioned a name that you, I, you don't hear anymore that, that much, but uh, you mentioned Richard Rorty's critique
0: mm-hmm.
1: of Nietzsche, Foucault as well. Maybe acquaint us with, with Rorty a little bit and that critique. Cause I think, you know, most of the thinkers that I enjoy looking at, and I think probably you would as well, with the exception, I don't know if Lacan really, Draws all that much from from Nietzsche, but certainly Baudrillard does, Foucault does, mm-hmm. Derrida to a lesser extent, and then obviously Deleuze in particular. You know, those he's a, extremely influential for those thinkers, which sort of are at the at the top of my mind when it when I'm thinking about theory these days and and some type of anarchism.
2: For me, Rorty was the main uh, representative of that um, philosophical trend we were talking about a few minutes ago. Pragmatism, right—that uniquely American approach to to philosophy, you know, which which focuses um, so much on on outcomes and on—in in the hands of Rorty, I see pragmatism as as being used, you know, mainly to kind of shore up the theoretical foundations of the the modern liberal state. Um, and so, so he ended up being, you know, one of the main sort of critical targets in the book. I. I tried not to make him a straw man because you know, I did. I did want to take his theories seriously, but right, um, you know that was the. It, it was basically the you know the the variety of um, postmodern thinking that I wanted to sort of position myself against uh, in that right. book.
1: It's funny. So one of the early texts, I don't even remember. I'd have to. I don't know how I would find this book, but I randomly found this little survey book that had rorty was included among it was the survey of postmodern thinkers that included rorty and i even remember thinking you know even some of his ideas weren't that bad i mean mm-hmm. in comparison to what we see today among like where liberalism is now even rorty seems yep. a bit i don't i wouldn't i won't say revolutionary but he's mm-hmm. de- feels a little bit more to the left of kind of like the standard current of of liberalism as it oh is yeah now. definitely yeah which is kind of funny.
2: yeah they they keep they keep moving the goalposts <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: it's like woof yep in the context of the law and the state according to Nietzsche that that you reference in the book which I thought was extremely fascinating was and and something I hadn't even considered was this relationship between crime and punishment and sort of mm-hmm. that that correspondence that equ- that equivalency or that idea that there is a those sort of things can be Equivocated.
2: Yeah. And this is um, something that I found especially in the the second essay of the Genealogy of Morals. Uh, There's a really interesting discussion in there where Nietzsche's talking about um, crime and punishment as um, a chain of signification. And, you know, he almost sounds like a post structuralist, avant la lettre, as they say, right? Like before (laughs) the fact, um, uh, you know, talking about how, well, you know, somebody commits a crime and then there's a trial and they're convicted and they're, and they're punished and whatever, but it's, it's really just this, this chain of, of symbols and signifiers. And there's, there's no necessary connection between the original crime and the punishment. And, um, I just, I thought that was such an interesting idea with obviously strong anarchist implications, right? Because that, that really goes to the heart of the whole, um, Kind of um, judicial apparatus uh, that we have um, in the modern world, where you know we, again, you know, it's based on this premise of rationality. We see humans as rational actors who are making you know reasonable decisions, and so then we feel justified in providing these these punishments to them for their actions. But once you start, you know, viewing humans in in a different way, for example, a Lacanian way, realize oh, that we're these you know black voids of infinite desire who are you know trying to find some way to to fill up that void and you know taking actions we don't even understand why we're taking these actions and so then you know it starts to make punishment seem much more arbitrary
1: what i thought was really fascinating here and i think there's a there's something here is this that same thing being applied to money and value or you know mm-hmm. what i mean i think there's a there's a greater logic of capitalism or of even maybe just in rationalist modernity of that yep. concept of exchange and equivalency through yep. money or whatever, you know what I mean? Yep. That, that sort of base, whatever that idea is ultimately like imp- impacts both of those, whether it be economically or, or with crime and punishment.
2: Absolutely. And this is something else that's in the second essay of the genealogy. Uh, it's, it's part of Nietzsche's uh, reading of Christianity, the idea that, um, that we have a debt to our ancestors. And he uses this kind of quasi-economic language to talk about it, right? And so then um, this is his understanding of the, the crucifixion, right? Is that, oh, the debt is paid off, right? That Jesus died supposedly for our sins, and so now you know, that debt has been, uh, has been paid off. Uh, but, you know, then you, you start thinking about it and wondering, wow, is it, is it ever actually possible to pay off a debt like that? Or, you know, is it more like, more like our national debt that's kind of like this permanent debt of, of guilt or sin or what have you that actually never can be paid off? Uh, so I just I thought that was kind of an interesting way to, to think about them relationship between different generations and how there might be some sense of obligation uh, to the past.
1: It's sort of this oppressive element of of modernity too. to just kind of rely on this. Again, it's that rationalist scientific approach that, okay, there must be an equivalent. We can codify everything there. You can can, uh, arrive at these equivalencies, whether it be with punishment or with money or whatever the case may be. Um, I did an anti-work episode uh, a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago. And that was kind of one of the big eye openers there, you know, things that you kind of, again, it's things that you automatically know or you've experienced, but you haven't really thought about that in depth or you haven't really had the vocabulary to, to think about them in this way was, you know, there's trying to equivocate, you know, someone, let's say you're cleaning your house, right? There's a difference between being hired to go clean someone's house and doing it yourself, right? Even though everything else could be objective, like the exact same house, totally different experience. So if you're not accounting for that subjectivity element of reality, then, you know, what are you doing? You're never going to have, like, you can't can't do that. It's not going to work. It's going to be that authoritarian notion of objectivity. Yeah, that, as we've discussed, is kind of is kind of phantasmatic, fant- or whatever.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this you know, this to me is the fatal flaw of utilitarianism, right? The utilitarians always said, "Oh, we can just measure everything. We can figure out how much pleasure or discomfort each thing will bring, and then you know, create our social policy accordingly." And so, you know, if that were actually true, you should be able to say, "Oh, you know, it causes me this much displeasure to have to clean my own house, and this other person." Is willing to do it for this sum of money, and so that's you know you can create this equivalence, but it's there's no way for it to account for that subjective element, right? Uh, That just doesn't fit into that kind of well. Right. That uh, what what John Stuart Mill called the cold calculus of pain (laughs) and pleasure. Yeah. There's just no way to account for that.
1: Strand two that you discuss in the book is brings up Lacan, Mm -hmm. who again is is our is our king mob here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, What I what I love about what you discuss in the book and what you do is you incorporate a bit of a feminist critique of not only Lacan but just I think in general, which is is refreshing because some of the other post-anarchist thinkers that I've talked to and read have not really and um, you know encountered or really you know looked into the into feminism and the role that it has to play and the role that women and feminist identity and so forth has to play. So I had even actually I can't remember which author it was but I actually emailed after reading the chapter I was like hey I should reach out to this person if they're a feminist Lacanian just because I think that's you don't see a lot of feminist Lacanians or uh, aside from like Joan Kopchak or someone like that so
2: Mm. well this is one of the things that's actually most fascinating to me about Lacan is that on the one hand much like Freud He says some completely outrageous things about women, right? And there are aspects of his theory that could easily be read as profoundly reactionary or anti-feminist. And yet, on the other hand, he's generated this very substantial interest among feminists, um, you know, going all the way back to the 1970s, um, so... You know, you've got um, people like um, Kristeva, um, a little bit later, Judith Butler, Elizabeth Gross. um, You know, there's a number of pretty significant feminist theorists who've found things of value um, in Lacan. Um, And I mean, there's this whole tradition of um, kind of feminist Lacanian uh, film theory and film criticism uh, you mentioned Todd McGowan earlier. He's he's working in this tradition. Um, and so this is people like um, Laura Mulvey uh, back oh, yeah. in the 70s who did some really important work the on gaze. The, the male gaze. Exactly. And that, that's like a huge concept now. Right. And people use that all the time. Um, and, you know, that's that's that basically derives from a feminist rereading of Lacan Um or, well, I've, I've recently been doing some work on um, on horror films and especially the slasher film. And uh, so the, the big book there is um, a great book with a wonderful title, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws uh, by Carol <laughs> Clover. Nice. And she introduced the concept of the final girl, right? The, right. the oh, woman yeah. character who gets to survive to the end of the film. Um, and, you know, again, it's this huge influential theory. Everybody talks about it all the time. And a great deal of that is based on, you know, this kind of radicalized um, feminist rereading of psychoanalysis. So, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's really a lot to it.
1: Are you familiar with uh, Alenka Zupanchich?
2: I don't think so.
1: She is, uh, I believe she's, okay, she's from, is kind of a contemporary of Zizek's. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, just, I mean, for your, since you have an interest in this, uh, you might be interested in her book, uh, It's What is Sex? Mm. Because she's a Lacanian. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping, I eventually do want to, at least, if, if nothing else, at least read the book. But I'd, I'm hoping one day I can get her to come on the show and, and discuss the book. But I don't know, just off the top of my head, I thought you might find that to be an interesting read.
2: Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Um, and I used quite a bit of uh, Zizek in my, in my recent book. Yeah, I think he's a really interesting um, interpreter of Lacan.
1: So you, you mentioned, for, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but there's a, there's a bit of a discussion about how women are excluded from Subjectivity, And I can't remember mm-hmm. if that was in the context of Lacan specifically and in terms of theory or if that was just a broader statement that you had made.
2: So thinking back to what I may have <laughs> 20, meant years 20, ago, 20 years right? ago. Exactly. <laughs> um, so this this gets back to the, the influential but also quite controversial argument that Claude Levi-Strauss made. About the place that that women supposedly occupy in the symbolic exchange, right? Uh, this that uh, you know, according to Levi Strauss, in in the vast majority of traditional societies, such as tribal societies, women are basically treated as objects of exchange within the marital economy, right? That men create these kinship structures through the exchange of women, um, and then in the 1970s, the cultural anthropologist Gail Rubin. Um, Produced what I see as a devastating critique of Levi Strauss um, in an essay called "The Traffic in Women," where you know she basically articulated this, I think, very effective um, feminist critique of that uh, that theory. So, so you know, Rubin sort of started that process, and then other critics have have continued with that. You know, I think we've we've now got to the point where we we start to realize that oh, one of the unconscious effects of a lot of those traditional kinship structures, which, by the way, still exist in the modern world, right? Uh, One of the effects of those, those structures is actually to exclude women from the position of subjectivity, right? To treat them as objects. And so even today, I mean, I know a lot of people don't use the traditional wedding ceremonies anymore, but a lot still do. And so you have things like the father giving away the bride, right? So here's one patriarch who takes a woman who he sees as his property and gives her as a gift to another man who's aspiring to become a patriarch, right? And then he goes, you know, so (laughs) uh, yeah. So it's, and once you start thinking about that, you realize, wow, this is, (laughs) this is a problem, right? Uh, So I'm very interested in, you know, kind of uh, rethinking all of that stuff, marriage relations, kinship structures, family structures, and how, you know, all of that in a certain sense depends upon excluding women from the subject position and treating them as objects. And so then raises the obvious question, what is to be done about this, if anything? Here I see some potential for what we were talking about earlier, where why not just exclude everybody from the position of subjectivity, right? If we just (laughs) kind of like remove that whole concept so that then no one has the, the privilege of being the coherent, stable, rational subject, well, I don't know if that's a perfect solution, but at least it might create more equality, right? So that then men would not have this, you know, special subject position that they could claim as right. their own.
1: Is that related to Lacan's notion that, I guess, the, the law of the father?
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely, because, um, you know, this is a crucial way um, in which these, um, these kinship structures are constructed. Uh, by the way, uh, Levi-Strauss and Lacan were good friends, as you may know, and borrowed each other's ideas. And so uh, when Levi-Strauss was talking about how this kinship structure works, uh, he made a big deal out of, you know, the thing that Lacan would call the law of the father, which is the prohibition against incest, right? And so that's, that's basically what enables the entire system, according to Levi-Strauss, right? There's this, this rule, which is fundamental and appears in almost every human culture. Uh, it's, it's basically a rule of exogamy, right? That you have to find a sexual partner from outside of your immediate family. And the way that plays out in most kinship structures is, well, if you're a man, you have to go to a man who is from a different family than yours, and you have to ask him for one of his women, right? And then that becomes your wife, and so that's how you can create your own family. Um, but yeah, it all depends upon that, um, that prohibition against incest. That's what you know drives the whole exogamous uh, structure of it.
1: I do want to read, you have a really good quote about, uh, just backing up a bit, uh, this is not exactly quite related to what you just discussed, but you have a good quote from the book that i Thought you articulated that idea well about how women are sort of excluded. And I'll read that now. To be sure, women, as understood by Iroquois, as commodities who speak, who take themselves to market, can be seen as deeply subversive of the capitalist commodity exchange system.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, to me, and um, you know, obviously, I'm drawing upon. Luce Araguiris' work here, you know, to me this this is one of the uh, subversive potentials uh, that exists within this this deeply sexist uh, system of of kinship relations. Is that you know if we if we follow this line of reasoning through to its to its conclusion, well, we we can end up concluding that you know that women might be simultaneously objects and subjects, which could be a fairly powerful position, right? That um, you know that yes they are even today often treated as objects of exchange but they also speak on their own behalf right as Irigaray says they take themselves to market so that that's different from an inanimate commodity right that's you know someone who you know has the ability to participate in the system not only as an object but also as a subject simultaneously and so I think, I think that's a really interesting possibility. Weirdly enough, something that I did write about in the last chapter of my latest book when I was writing on Joss Whedon's version of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, uh, because like so much of early modern theater, uh, this was centrally concerned with these alliances and kinship structures and who's going to marry whom and you know how the families right. are going to intertwine and so forth. Um, And, you know, everybody's favorite character is Beatrice, uh, who was, you know, even at the time, pretty powerful kind of feminist character, uh, for precisely this reason, because she acts within the kinship structure, more as a man would act, right, and not as a woman would act. And in those cases where she's not allowed to act the way that a man would act, she actually makes that explicit, oh, that I were a man, she says. <laughs> I would eat his heart in the marketplace. And, and Joss Whedon says, this is the most important scene that Shakespeare ever wrote, <laughs> right? Because here, here we have this woman who, you know, would normally just be trapped in this kinship structure where all the power resides with men and, you know, nothing is available to her and she rejects that, right? She won't actually put up with that. And so she insists upon taking this kind of masculine power for herself.
1: I have a friend um, that, has a really interesting approach to this sort of uh, men and women, feminism, uh, masculinity as sort of the way that masculinity is constructed as sort of like there are, it's very, it's, it's regulated. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's more so a set of, okay, you, uh, a man cannot do X behavior because that's unmanly. Right. Yep. Versus women don't, women are a threat whenever they are approaching into that male territory of you know how however men can behave as subjects which i thought was a really kind of fascinating way to to think about it that i hadn't really figured out okay there's so much of these restrictions you know you know the the sort of tropes of don't cry or don't you know don't show emotion or all that sort of stuff that's prohibitive there's an interesting germ there of ideas to explore
2: Oh, it's just fascinating. So, um, in recent years, I've become absolutely intrigued with the sociology of gender. Um, so, there's um, a pretty famous sociologist, um, R. W. Connell, transgender, originally male, now female, and so and she's done some incredible work on on gender, how we how we define masculinity and femininity. And so Connell introduced this notion of hegemonic masculinity, right? So the, these are all the things that the dominant culture takes to be manly, right? Like, I don't know, you know, like being into cars and sports and, you know, all these kind of things. And I don't give a damn about sports. I never have, right? I'm, I'm not a good man in that sense. <laughs> I'm not I'm not masculine in that way, right? And so to me, it was just so liberating to realize, oh, all these things that, my, you know, I, when I was growing up, my culture said this is what it is to be a man. That's only one version of masculinity, right. right? That's the dominant one. That's the one that has cultural capital, but it's not the only game in town, right? And so, Connell talks about these other versions as well. There's a there's a complicit masculinity that kind of plays along with the hegemonic one. There's um, there's a subordinate masculinity that's uh, he uh, Connell associates that with um, uh, with gay men right because their masculinity is subordinate to that of, of straight men in a heteronormative culture um, and then there's uh, these kind of um, transgressive or oppositional masculinities where you can actually you know develop a a coherent form of masculinity that, uh, that counters, uh, the dominant form that resists it. And I just, I love that idea. And, right. um, so this is something that, um, you know, that I've been thinking about a lot, both in terms of my own personal life. And then also in my teaching, uh, in addition to history, I teach women's and gender studies. Uh, that field used to be known as women's studies and I'm I'm very grateful that now it's women's and gender studies. Actually, it's gone further. Now it's women's, gender, and queer studies. Oh, nice. So it's even more inclusive. You know, I think it's crucial to have gender there because then we can talk not only about, um, you know, the experience of women, but also about masculinity and right. about the problems and how our culture constructs masculinity.
1: It's something I've been thinking about a lot over the last five or six years myself because I'm definitely someone, I mean, grew up on a cattle ranch in Texas, right? So very much this tradi- traditional masculine ideal is kind of what I internalized for, for so much of my life. Right. And, and sort of, you know, that, that idea of weakness, like if you're, if you show any kind of weakness, then, you know, that's, that's bad. You're not a man and and being threatened, like you having to push out and externalize weakness or attack the weakness that you see in others to reify that kind of your own masculinity. And now we're seeing
2: how toxic that is, you know, it's like, Oh, like, like, uh, like Trump won't wear a a face mask. Right. Because, because that might suggest that he's unmanly or that he's weak somehow. Right. And so like, so 140,000 Americans have to die, right? Because he thinks it would be unmanly for him to put on a mask, you know, so that this is the consequence of that kind of thinking.
1: Absolutely. And so I, I have a huge interest in, in fashion as well. And so as time has gone on, I've, you know, kind of broken down those kind of preconceptions of, you know, a man can't wear X article, right. Or, or whatever. And I love to get move into a more androgynous or like, mm-hmm. even like I, I have a, a skirt that I wear mm-hmm. and, you know, I present pretty, you know, I'm a, some relatively fit, yeah, you know, I've got a huge beard and, you know, mm-hmm. a pretty mask. you know, traditionally masculine, at least presenting type of person. But I I don't know, again, along the lines of that, of the meme or whatever, messing with the symbols of it, I really like to to do that and kind of that contrast between, you know, I'm presenting as this very masculine person, yeah. but I'm wearing a, a, a yep. skirt or something like that. And not to like toot my own horn as some like liberatory practice, or I I really like to, if I can Mess with somebody's perceptions of what masculinity is in that way, then I I feel like that's at least I don't know. There's some value at at some level.
2: I think that's very worthwhile. Uh, So yeah, I I wouldn't I wouldn't sell that short at all. I think um, you know, especially when you're talking about gender, just because our our conceptions of gender are just so deeply ingrained, and anything that you can do to you know to push people to think outside the box in terms of gender, I I think is very valuable. My wife Michelle the executive director for our local LGBTQ plus uh, organization and last year they had a a body positive fashion show uh, for the young folks uh, in in the group and it was just wonderful they had um, you know they had um, some boys girls non-binary some transgender folks just you know people all all across the gender spectrum and they just, they found it so empowering to be able to get up there on stage and to wear what what you want to wear, right? What what feels empowering to you, and be able to present your gender in a way that makes sense to you, and not have to accept, you know, whatever society says your your gender ought right. to be. I I think that's really important. It is very
1: funny to me how and I for a while I did. Customer service for like a fashion adjacent kind of company and the responses. So we, there would be ads on social media, whether it be like Facebook or something. And mm-hmm. it's like an outfit and, you know, it's like a, a plaid shirt and some dark jeans and some, you know, boots or something that people are like, oh, that that's gay or that's effeminate or that's something like that. And I would just be like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So people ad- attach themselves to these notions yep. like that so intimately. It's so bizarre to me and just i get so frustrated with that i know kind they, of thing. They,
2: they see a plaid flannel shirt and they think butch lesbian right, right yeah <laughs> was, like right not, right away i don't like, even
1: <laughs> know if they were thinking that it was just like i mean these this is like not the most you know what i mean this is not the most this is not android this is like what this is like someone work wear, you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's, it was so bizarre to me how how people kind of hold those identities that are fed to us so tightly and, and consider them so you know to have so much purchase in, in the real
2: yeah it's, it's wild, yeah it's just, and so one, one thing i've I've realized um, in, in recent years is just my gender seems to be such a big deal to other people, right and I'm like, you know, why, why is it that other people care so much about what my gender is right or about how I choose to express it? you know even, even with the pronouns, you know what's interesting to me about the pronouns yes. is pronouns are words that that other people use for us, right. Yeah, I mean we we don't we don't use our own pronouns, right? Uh, you know, when we're talking about ourselves, we say I, which is the same for regardless of your gender, right? Right. So right. it's it's the words that other people use, and um, people seem very invested in this. It's they like, really do. They really do. It's like, you know, what 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 makes you think that you have the right to decide what pronoun you're going to use for me? <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> yeah. You see this a lot on Twitter too, because oftentimes a lot of uh, Trans or even, you know, people that are considered the some allies to trans folks or whomever will put their pronouns in their uh, little Twitter kind of bio mm-hmm. or whatever. So you often see whatever these reactionaries or more right wing types are like, oh, pronouns in the bio oh we know that what that means or you know what I mean that's kind of their do you (laughs) thing to attack (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, I even there was one person that had commented they were something like oh something about oh you can't use these these made-up pronouns
2: and I was kind (laughs) of like oh buddy Yeah, <laughs> made, made made up like oh I don't know like all language is made up. <laughs>
1: yeah, I thought that was just so funny. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, we've got a yeah, long I, road I, ahead.
2: I I finally put them in my email signature. So um, oh yeah,
1: I did notice that.
2: Yeah yeah, I've got it in there, and that was interesting because for for a while I was saying oh you know I I, I wouldn't really need to do this right because right. I'm a cisgender man. True. And then Same. and my wife my wife pointed out no actually it's even more important for you to do it because you're a cisgender man right so you can kind of model this and so
1: right that's a good point
2: yeah it's like um you know, why why should gay people be the only ones who have to come out of the closet right why couldn't straight people come out of the closet about being straight right so it's just a way to kind of challenge those expectations
1: you might find this interesting too lewis is that it's it's really i don't i don't know what this speaks to i think there's definitely there's something about maybe it's just the circles that, it could be just the echo chamber that i'm in that just pre- creates this but it seems like there's so many people that i'm friends with or follow on on twitter in particular that are like you know they're transgender and they're they're anarchists or they're you mm-hmm. know marxists or whatever the case may be but so many of those folks are are radicalized and i think it's yep. very cool and interesting and i'm grateful that so many of them like embrace me as you know a, a cis man that you know yeah. we're we're friends and we can interact and there's yep. no like uh animosity between us I, don't know, I I think that's so cool and that's I think that speaks to something about anarchism or the value within it that that the the sort of oppression or the what these what these folks experience is a more direct i guess way that this this whole kind of forced identity whether it be as a consumer or you know gender or whatever the case may be like these these external identities that come to control us more than than you know function as some sort of like you know practical way of operating in the world which i think a lot of people assume without realizing oh you know all all pronouns are made up right
2: yep 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 you know i think there's a real connection there i mean you know at the, at the most basic fundamental level you can think of anarchism as a complete rejection of the idea that outside forces should be able to tell you what your identity has to right. be right that's like a fundamental bedrock anarchist concept and so i can see how anybody who's uh, who's transgender or non-binary or gender non-conforming in any way would find that very appealing right um and so i think uh, there's um, it's you know, it's not surprising if there's a lot of crossover between um, anarchist communities and uh, transgender or gender nonconforming communities.
1: To so, jump back to the book, the I believe the thir- the third strand that you referenced in the book was was Weber, who I think often gets you don't hear about Weber that much these days. I think Mm-mm. actually Andrew Koch did mention Weber a little bit, but uh, I'm kind of curious. Why you decided to reference Weber as part of the post-anarchism book? Because I, I don't think that's the connection that most
2: people would. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember too. <laughs> oh, um, sorry, and I, no, that's okay. I'm. We'll fine. have to get you I, that. I think... If I get you the key drug, will you? Will uh, yeah, you then then the signifier <laughs> will collapse into the signified, exactly. and it will all become clear. <laughs> um, so. You know, I, I think what I was trying to do there is to set up some kind of broad context for the, for the Baudrillard discussion. Uh, gotcha. And so I was, I was going back to some of them, you know, the, the early um, uh, sociologists, people who, you gotcha. know, originally started developing these theories of, uh, of symbolic exchange and so on. So I think, I think that's how Weber and Durkheim and those guys um, got in there. Gotcha.
1: That's so interesting because that's, so one of the most influential classes that I ever took in in my life was just a sociology like 1301 course that really it it blew my mind one of the most mind-blowing things and again come this is you got to contextualize this me being growing up on, on a cattle ranch in central texas uh you know fundamentalist christian home right so i i get to my 1301 sociology class and the professor to this day i still remember he said was talking about how you know, we always say that the Soviet Union had elections, right, but there was only one party, and so whenever he flipped that and said okay well yeah the the u s has elections too, but there's only one party, the capitalist party that like
2: yeah that connection there <laughs> just, really that you blew my it. mind yep, yep, yep,
1: and so i ended up actually I ended up uh, dual dual majoring in in English and sociology, so I think that's an That'd interesting cool. maybe that's the that's sort of that that intellectual milieu of sociology and mm-hmm. all these other things. It's interesting to see how that coalesces and the commonalities. You definitely utilizing Weber and, uh, and other thinkers as well that kind of work in this post anarchist realm. Um, I just think that's, an interesting coincidence or
2: I, I like to be very interdisciplinary. You know, I really, I don't like to, to limit myself. So, I mean, we've been talking about psychoanalysis and right. now sociology, anthropology. Um, yeah. I like to draw, you know, pretty, pretty broadly on a variety of different uh, disciplines. Keeps things interesting. So and by the way, I, I grew up in Southern New Mexico, about 40 miles from the state, uh, Texas state line.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> not but, uh, on a cattle ranch, but <laughs> not on the cattle ranch. All right. So kind of similar vibes. To wrap us up, Lewis. I suppose we can we can finish up on, on Baudrillard. I guess maybe it's because I'm already predisposed to be a, a tremendous fan of Baudrillard, but I, I really, really enjoyed the chapter on Baudrillard significantly. Well, thank you. Um, and uh, one of the takes that I thought was especially interesting here, that again is one that you know most people would may not have upon first glance. Is that you you know, twenty years ago you did write that Beaugerard was in a sense more anarchistic than Foucault.
2: Yep, I did. You're right. I, I went back and looked at the book and yeah, you you're right, I did say that. So <laughs> it's just one of those embarrassing comments that comes back to haunt you decades later. Um so But I no, I like it. What, what, what was what was I thinking there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I thought it was I interesting. guess
2: uh, yeah, so I guess I mean a couple of things. So, you know, there's Well, for one thing, you know, Foucault has this kind of um, fraught relationship with politics and political organizing, right? Because he, you know, he was always um, skeptical of of public intellectuals, um, of the Jean-Paul Sartre variety, right? And so, you know, wanted to avoid that temptation of being the, you know, the the brilliant intellectual who stands up and proclaims, you know, here's how we're going to solve the world's problems, right? And so... Which And I think he had very good reasons for that, that skepticism. And I'm not saying by any means that that makes Foucault apolitical. I don't think it does. But you, know, I, I felt like, you know Baudrillard um, was coming from a very different place and um, actually was, I think, um, more willing to, you know, maybe not, not get involved in, in political movements in the traditional sense, but uh, develop a theory. Um, that would be of great potential value to those movements, if you see what I mean. So, yeah. you know, so that, that's what I really took from from Baudrillard is this, you know, really interesting uh, theory about um, gift giving and symbolic exchange, which I thought um, could actually be um, of great use to a number of anarchist and other types of progressive movements.
1: Good stuff. I, like I said, uh, Foucault was instrumental, I think, in me. I'm embracing anarchism, uh, although that I think at the time that I was reading him initially, it was more so from like the liberal, like the, the, the anarchism has been more something that I've delved into over the last four or five years than, you know, it was, I, I think it was more of like a, like I said, kind of a liberal anarchism or what have you that, that I was initially sort of coming from. But I think that's, that's matured a lot. And I think, Foucault is definitely instrumental, but Baudrillard, I just absolutely loved. And I think he's such a such a prophet of post-modernity. You know, the day after the 2016 election, I was like, holy shit, Baudrillard was right.
2: Yep. I, Welcome to the hyper real. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <that laughs> everything's worked. simulation. Everything's fake news, right? Nothing's real. Yeah, I know. It just, it seems all too accurate now, doesn't it?
1: I like this point that uh, you you referenced in the book, just about Baudrillard's idea that we haven't reached the end of history but the non-existence of history.
2: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, aphorism. I guess, <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's kind of weird for me as a historian to be talking about the non- <laughs> right? non-existence of my own field of study, but, <laughs> uh, but I still think it's an interesting idea. So, you know, obviously there, there are huge problems with that concept of the, the end of history, Francis Fukuyama, all that, and that, that turned out to be nonsense, right? But, um, but this idea that, you know, history, you know, do- doesn't really exist in the same sense that money doesn't exist, that right. political power doesn't exist. Exist right that it's it has a kind of of reality, but as simulation, right? So that's that's how I think I would um, approach that. Is that and this gets back to historiography, right? So you know when we write history, when we do historiography, we are basically um, you know creating these these simulations of the past, as as Baudrillard might say. And so I think it's useful to recognize you know this this simulation. It's not how the past really was, right? It's not how, you know, I I teach my students about um, Leopold von Ranke and the empiricist school of history. And, you know, Ranke said, oh, we have to tell the past wie es eigentlich gewesen, as it actually was, right? Right. And so we talk about the problems (laughs) with, with that approach. So, you know, I think if you, instead of doing that, if you, you know, take this more kind of Baudrillardian approach and say, okay, I'm just going to write an interesting simulacrum of the past, right, that might reveal to us something of of what happened in the past, you know, that I think is still potentially valuable. And um, uh, I think it could be a a kind of uh, fun and provocative way to write history.
1: Sort of like the approach he takes in what it was, uh, what the Gulf War did not take place, I believe, Mm -hmm. is the actual title.
2: Yep, uh, the the year 2000 already happened before <laughs> the year 2000, right? And the Gulf War didn't take place. Yep. Yeah, he had a few pieces like that, uh, yeah, kind of late in his career.
1: This may be unfair, again, to put you on the spot with, but I'm kind of curious, you do reference Bataille a bit in mm-hmm. in terms of, I think, more so Bataille, I think, is someone that Odor draws from significantly. Mm-hmm. And I think in particular, the, the Akersher, which I haven't read and I haven't delved much into Bataille. Do you, what, what value do you see for Bataille or at least maybe go into a little bit about how, Mm -hmm. how um, Bataille influenced Baudrillard.
2: So that, that book, the accursed share was just a breath of fresh air for me. And um, it it actually gets back to what we were talking about earlier with scarcity. Yeah. Because um, so he develops this, um, he calls it a theory of general economy, which is just radically different from kind of, liberal economic theory in, in every possible way from start to finish. And so, you know, whereas um, liberal economics starts out with the assumption of scarcity and then uses that as the justification for markets and all the rest of it, Bataille starts out with the assumption of great abundance. And so then his whole thing is, oh, you know, we, we have this great abundance of, of wealth. And so, what we have to figure out is, um, is, is how to use all of that up. And so, uh, you know to me it was just a just a radically different take on on economics and um, so he gives it gives a lot of examples of kind of like um, you know frivolous uses of wealth things like sacrifice right where you know you're just wasting all of these as it might appear to a liberal wasting all of these resources but actually doing something pretty important uh, within a system of symbolic exchange right uh, so I just thought it was such a such a unique and different way of um, of thinking about an economy. And So much of Baudrillard's stuff is about symbolic exchange. And as you say, he does draw upon uh, some of those ideas from Bataille.
1: Scarcity of information was a kind of a bullet point that I thought was kind of inspiring. And I actually literally got, you know, I mentioned that earlier, how it started to make me think about how, and I sort of had the germ of this idea earlier about how markets are not regulating prices they're regulating desire mm-hmm. well, i think because of this section in the book that i was kind of like oh that's a and again it's it's oftentimes these things that you kind of feel instinctually or in your gut or you know whatever mm-hmm. however you want to articulate it but when you get that when you can see the vocabulary that kind of drives it home you're like it's that light bulb coming on yep it's so so interesting and yeah, i love that feeling things, right we talked about uh, oh another. Element here from the Baudrillard chapter that I thought was quite interesting, um, and again,' I'll putting you on the spot a little bit is about how how important humanism is to capitalism and this sort of consumer society
2: mm-hmm. yeah because that that humanist subject you know that that humanist concept um, of of the the person understood as a, you know, a rational economic agent who's making choices within the marketplace, that that's what drives the whole system, right? That figure is crucial uh, to the whole system, both in terms of, of production on the labor side, but also in terms of, of consumption. Um, so, you know, people who are really serious about critiquing uh, that system of modern corporate consumer capitalism, you know, I think um, they're, they're well advised to target that particular, you know, humanist conception. Because if you, can, if you can develop a critique of that and show, oh, this, you know, this concept, this humanist concept of the, you know, the rational economic agent is a fiction well, then that, that sort of undermines the the whole, you know, theoretical foundation of that um, that entire economic system.
1: Something else you mentioned, I'm going to read actually, this is a direct quote. I thought this was, so we kind of have said that, no, I guess we did sort of point out the the relationship between the, I guess the potentiality for information technology, for example, to be sort of this liberating force, but also it, it can, you know, it can go the other way if you're, it could be a line of flight or it could be a, a line of of control to borrow okay. from you know deleuze and guattari but I thought this was a great line uh, from the book is the more these political social economic political social economic systems advance towards their own perfection the more they deconstruct themselves and i think this is a really interesting passage because i feel like you can see this operating so clearly within our current world that sort of tension between these two but you feel like it feels like the more deterritorialized things are heading that way even if they're continually getting recuperated or re-territorialized by capital it's like there is maybe this move towards something more more fragmented and less less controlling and less authoritarian or more novel but again you know things can break either way but there is at least some kind of space and it feels like we're on the precipice of you know a, a totally new paradigm potentially when it comes to civilization or society mm-hmm. or however you want to you know articulate it
2: yeah you know I, I like systems that break themselves and then put themselves back together again <laughs> so yeah I'm, I'm cautiously hopeful that um, we may be uh, experiencing something like that now I mean it's you know it's pretty clear that the uh, the systems that we've been relying upon are no longer functioning in the ways that they were intended to do so um yeah, if these if these systems can be self-deconstructing and then, you know, um can sort of resurrect themselves in more useful and more ethical forms, then I think that has to be a good thing.
1: Last question for you would be and mm-hmm. and again putting you on the spot, this is uh are you? Do you have a point of view on on accelerationism at all? Because I know you referenced. I can't remember if it was the book or the article that you referenced Sadie Plant. So I was just kind of curious mm-hmm.
2: if you had a yeah. POV so I don't. There. I don't have a lot to say about um, accelerationism. Um, I mean, I guess I do agree with kind of the basic point that um, you know the the pace of technological change um, has been accelerating dramatically in in recent decades. Um, I'm skeptical of the notion that we might be able to control that process. Um, I think it's largely beyond uh, human control. Um, And I also think it's very difficult or maybe even impossible to, to predict how that process is going to develop in the future. So I feel like sometimes accelerationism, you know, has this kind of implicit teleology where they're saying we're accelerating towards this particular right. thing, or, you know, it's going in this particular direction. I don't think we really can know that. And one of the reasons I think we can't know it is precisely because it is accelerating so much, right? So I think that, that you know, that leaves it really beyond our uh, our capacity to, uh, to develop a, uh, a sound understanding of it, uh, you know, when we're living in that moment. Uh, but In in terms of you know the question, are things changing and is the rate of change (laughs) getting faster? Yes, absolutely.
1: So there's a number of kind of sub accelerationism broadly, and then there's a number of kind of sub categories or ways of implementing it. Or I I don't know that might not even the best way to describe it, but one of them is there is like a a gender accelerationism is one Mm. of them. So I just mentioned that because I feel like you might find that an interesting thing to look at or respond to in your in your work and something that. Again, I'm, accelerationism is something that I kind of have a somewhat of an interest to, just because of the the cyberpunk elements of it, mm-hmm. the sort of uh, potential uh, decentralized aspects of it. But also, I feel like this there is something going on as far as, and maybe this isn't even really accelerationism itself. Is just a more a theory of of capital and the way that it's evolved. Is you know we talked earlier about the way that you know, there are transactions within apps or video games mm-hmm. in the context of desire. But thinking about that from like the, from a p- point of view of exchange and how like the way that that sort of, that sort of de- development is, has, uh, has evolved because you have maybe like what the credit card came out in the 1970s somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so that. sort of that maybe an inflection point for that acceleration for these because transactions can be made without cash so even just physically in physical space the the exchange is is speeding up right and then as that progresses then you have the internet and before we had before we had mobile apps and so forth buying buying things online going on amazon.com from your home computer that's again that's speeding up that Process of transaction and exchange, and now that we have the mobile phone that enables even because you're on the go and you can you don't have to wait till you get home or you see that product you buy it directly from your phone and how that because that is a material force of society or culture or what have you that speed is doing something it's having an impact on our on our cultural and our systems of whether it be political economy or, or what have you, there's definitely like that. The speeding up of that has really even just kind kind of completely wiped out liberal kind of liberalism's ability to to control it or to to manage it, even at a at a most, you know, at a very basic level.
2: Yeah, that sounds accurate. Um I mean, I I feel like, well, you know, if you just look at the kind of stumbling way in which modern liberal states try to regulate or even to comprehend the new technologies, right? It seems like they are always several steps behind right. uh, each each new technological development. So, yeah, you know, to me that says, well, you know, a lot of these political structures are themselves um, probably fairly outdated now. And, you know, yeah, maybe it made sense or it was capable of dealing with, um, you know, the the kinds of Technologies that were developing in the 19th century or the early 20th century, but yeah, they they seem to have lost control over these, um, you know, rapidly accelerating kind of uh, postmodern information technologies that we have now, and it's hard to see them, um, you know, ever being able to to regain that control.
1: Right, and I think that's that's kind of what I'm getting at in terms of, in terms of how that sort of deterritorialization territorialization process. Is progressing towards these more sort of fragmentary, um, less monolithic forms, but also I think it's interesting that, like the, I said, the the tension that capitalism's own logic is placing on its on its ability to to reproduce itself is such an interesting thing. Um, and also along these lines, I had been thinking about you know. Marx always talked about you know eventually these these contradictions within capitalism would would create its own dissolution or, or rupture or what have you, but it almost seems like at least up to this point that those those antagonisms within capitalism are just contributing to that same process of accelerating everything up and it 's mm-hmm. actually making the 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 insane conflicts and, and contrasts like propel it, it just goes faster and faster mm-hmm. instead of weakening it, it kind of um, reifies it or strengthens yeah. it by these insane. So, like,
2: yeah, clearly it hasn't worked out the way that Marx right? anticipated, yeah. but you know, again, I, th- I think much like Freud, you know, Marx is somebody who, even when he's wrong, he's wrong in interesting ways. Cause I, th- I think he was right to say, oh, there are these fundamental contradictions built into the, the capitalist uh, system of political economy. Um, and although, you know, these did not lead to, you know, the disintegration of capitalism and the rise of of communism in the form that Marx envisioned it, um, I think it has led to some pretty significant changes. And, you know, the way I see it is that the contradictions make capitalism mutate into something new, right? right. Um, and often something so radically different that Okay, we still call it capitalism, but it almost doesn't even make sense to use that same word because this this bears no resemblance to the kind of you know nineteenth century industrial factory capitalism that right. uh, that the world once knew, right um, so you know that that I think is the the main impact of these these tensions within the the economic structure is you know not not to destroy capitalism but to make it change into something that is so different that maybe we need a new term and maybe even a new you know theoretical apparatus to understand this this strange new creature
1: and especially like i had that idea of of how it regulates and controls and shapes and creates desires i think that has sort of outgrown like you said that sort of quaint notion of Supply and demand that you, you mm-hmm. know, when you get into debates yep. with people that when you create yeah. capital, oh, supply and demand. Yeah. That's it. That's it.
2: Well, when you have a system that is, <laughs> is, is capable of generating infinite demand, then, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, hard, hard to see that as, uh, you know, purely the operation of disinterested market forces. Yes,
1: yeah, Absolutely. I think I think that brings us to a pretty good stopping point for the episode, Lewis. I do want to Great. allow. Well, aside from thanking you again for for joining me on the show, if there's something you'd like to perhaps say to the audience, or maybe a point that we didn't go over that you feel is relevant, I definitely would just want to give you the opportunity to tell us about you know when your next book is coming out, where we can perhaps find some of your your work and because I think it'd be uh, interesting to both those who were listening to this for the, the sort of comic book discussion, but also the anarchism mm-hmm. and, and post-structuralism. So the, those are sort of the three, the three yep. pillars. <laughs> so yeah.
2: Well, it's um, probably going to be a while until my next book comes out because I haven't started writing it yet okay, or nice. even figured out what it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I but did very the- recently come out with, uh, with my, my latest book, uh, Sexualities in the Works of Joss Whedon, um, which we talked about a little bit. Um, I, I think uh, we've covered a lot of ground and mainly I would just like to say to the audience, thanks for listening and um, you know, I hope it's been interesting uh, for you and I'd like to thank you, Cooper. Uh, This has been a lot of fun for me and yeah, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show.
1: Tremendous pleasure. I I really enjoyed the discussion. It was very like, it's just talking like a couple of friends talking.
2: Yeah. 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 I I like that kind of uh, informal approach.
1: That's what, I mean, that's kind of what I try to go for uh, largely without, you know what I mean? try to, kind of make that balance between wanna have some structure but not too yep. much structure so that things flow and we get value out of the conversation without you know just going off on too many tangents. But uh, once again, Dr. Lewis Call, thanks so much for joining me. This will be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. The signing off. Of eating, of
0: negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Can we change the old state of things into violence without object? This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I did is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized
2: people, as in the or orange,